What is going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 31 of Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. Ben, how's it going, man? What are you up to? Uh, everything is good, and everything is everything is going quicker now that they got these pitch clocks in. We should have a we should have a clock to cut out all the dead time that we have on our podcast. And, yeah, well, the clock is like a, I guess for a, for a well produced podcast the clock would be the editor going back through and just cutting out that dead time but you know i think our pace is pretty good on this one i don't know we go two hours or so every podcast do you think we could cut down on pace that is that the pace and time are not the same ben come on that's true that's true i mean that's that i do see i see people complaining oh i i i don't care about a three and a half hour game well it's like well if you can just cut out all of the dead time and pitchers stepping out and relief pitchers coming in and taking 35, 40 seconds in between pitches and just get them back to working at the pace that frankly, they used to work at. I mean, it's almost like going back to old school baseball where pitchers just used to work faster. And it, yeah, I, think, I in- think it just makes a more enjoyable flow of the game absolutely absolutely and jj has been writing a ton about pace of play if you guys listen to this podcast i'm sure you've seen his stories on the changes that have happened so far this year in the minor leagues we'll link to those down in the show notes if you want to read those and you haven't but he he basically found that over the first um i guess week or so when these pace of play rules were being enforced around minor league baseball we've basically seen games cut 20 minutes in, in total game time overall, which is fantastic because like we're talking about, it, it's, it's not like we are reducing the actual baseball you're getting. You're just removing all of the boring non-baseball action in the game. The, the, the dead time, the walking around the mound, the getting out of the batter's box, waiting on a pitch to be thrown. And I feel like I have a pretty vivid understanding of the difference in the, pace of play measures and the pitch clock versus not having it because the NHSI week um, I was basically watching all those high school baseball games. And I think high school and and college games in general are probably, I I don't know, maybe I'm just throwing this out here and it's wrong, but they feel slower to me just in terms of how quickly everything happens. Um, Certainly college games feel much slower. Um, But after going to all those NHSI games, I went to a minor league game where they had a pitch clock and it really just felt like it was throw the ball, catch the ball, throw it back and and we're moving again. There was not a lot of dead time around the ball. And just, even though I think the game was around three hours, the fact that the pace was sped up, it it just made the experience much more enjoyable. Everyone I feel like has been to a game that just kind of drags along and you're constantly waiting for things to happen. But for me, it's almost like, I get it. There are some diehards who are like, well, more baseball is always better baseball. But if you could have a baseball game that you're watching on TV and you just remove all the commercials, well, your experience watching that baseball game just was cut dramatically, but you didn't lose any of the actual baseball. Um, so I do think it's it's really a a great change. Hopefully we continue to see this sort of time save moving forward. I know in the past we've had measures like this go into place Um, and then slowly, it just seems like for whatever reason, those gains start to disappear, whether it's, um, they're not enforced as, as strictly or players find workarounds, 
Um, but I, I think this is, it seems to me like a pretty universally good move for baseball. And I can't wait to see it at the major league level, because I do think there are some under the table, um, I guess, results of this that, that we'll see. Hopefully it'll be more balls in play. Um, hopefully we can avoid pitcher injuries. I know that's always a question that people have if, if you're kind of forcing the tempo of a pitcher and they can't recover between pitches as much as they previously could. Well, maybe you have more injuries. Hopefully pitchers are just not throwing hundred percent as frequently and the actual game itself becomes a lot more, um, more balls in play, more action, more athleticism, um, and just, just a better experience for everyone. I think the, the early returns are very positive. Um, are, are there any negatives that, that you see from this Ben, or what are your overall thoughts on, on the pace of play changes and, and have you experienced it at all? Just any general thoughts that I haven't covered? Well, when they first introduced the pitch clock into the minor leagues years ago, my initial reaction was, this is kind of dumb. Why? I don't want to see a pitch clock in baseball. It's going to be distracting. We don't need a clock. Uh, there, there's got to be some other ways that they can achieve these objectives without putting a clock into baseball. And then you go to a game and you, you do notice the clock at first because it's it's this sort of novelty, right? You're not used to seeing a clock at a baseball game, but after about an inning or so, it just sort of fades into the background. You don't notice it um, on, on TV. I, I hope, you know, I, I I'm, I'm assuming at this point, this is coming to the major leagues. So I'm hoping that it's not something that you see broadcast on the, on TV. Like, I don't want to see a clock counting down <laughs> maybe i guess unless it gets to maybe like two or three seconds and you might actually have a a violation because I, I do think that would be distracting but when you actually go to the game and you're there it i i think almost universally it seems like the fan response and and my response too has been yeah you don't really notice the pitch clock except that it does seem to make for a better flow of game. Like you said, you're not losing any actual baseball. You're just cutting out a lot of the dead time, the standing around time there. Look, there's still time in between pitches. It's not like there's not time for you to think about strategy and, and think about the game as it's happening. There's still plenty of time for, that to happen it just creates better flow to the game it creates a better quality of product and you can still have you can still have high scoring games that you know go for three hours instead of you know three hours and 45 minutes and, and is ending at you know 10 45 11 o'clock at night on on a weeknight it's i think it just you can, I think generally people will have ideas in their head, including myself when it first came out that, oh, this is a bad thing for X, Y, and Z reason. But when you actually go to a game and you can see, I think JJ tweeted out something about, hey, tell me your experience if you've been to a game recently that have had these new pitch clock rules being enforced more stringently. And and you could see all the responses like, yeah, I thought it was great. <laughs> Yeah, I just think it's it's pretty fantastic overall. And like you said, it, it fades into the background pretty quickly. If you've never seen the pitch clock, it's certainly something that you will notice right away because, and, and for a lot of diehards and maybe people who are really traditional, 
people always talk about how baseball doesn't have a clock. That can be maybe something that irritates people at first, but I think it's similar to like a shot clock in a basketball game. Um, that is ticking down for every single possession in any basketball game you ever watch. Um, and it's not something that you really notice until um, it gets close to the end and, and the shot needs to come and everyone's kind of aware that something is about to happen. So it builds tension in basketball in a way that it, it doesn't quite so much in baseball. Um, but I do feel like it's something that just kind of fades away. I mean, at all the parks that you, you have this at too, the outfield is littered with a bunch of advertisements and at times multiple scoreboards with a lot of things going on. And it's not like, at least for me, none of those items in the back of the field are distracting. Um, and a lot of those, honestly, it, it's pretty easy to just kind of have those fade out for you as you focus on what's actually happening on the field. Um, and especially for, for major league parks, there, there are a ton of boards um, that are lit up in the background all over the field and behind the stadium um, that, that could be distracting if you're just focused on that the whole time. But most people are actually watching the game. And I feel like once you get used to the pitch clock and once you kind of realize what it's doing, you forget about it pretty quickly. And hopefully people can just enjoy actual baseball happening more frequently. Um, I think it's great. I can't wait for it to come to the majors. Curious if you guys, if you guys have any, any like negative um, outside of just, you don't like clocks in baseball. Cause I feel like that one, you're probably just going to have to get over it. There, there's still not a time on the game, which I feel like is the more important um, kind of comment about baseball, not having a timer. Like every team is still going to have, you're not going to be limited by time. If you are trying to make a comeback in baseball, this is just literally having people actually play the game with more frequency, which I think is good. So if there are any negatives that you guys think could come of this, that, that I haven't thought about, or maybe you're more worried about, definitely let us know. But the, the really, the only one that I feel like makes any sense is the, the fear of pitcher injury. And, and for me, I think it's just as simple as pitchers are going to have to adjust and not throw hundred percent every time. Like you're going to have, I mean, a long time ago, I don't know actually how long ago this was, but starting pitchers did not go out. Um, and max effort on every throws. And now you have pitchers like, I think Matt Brash recently talked about it. He is trying to throw the ball as hard as he can. Every pitch, he is trying to have all of his breaking balls be ripped off as, as hard as he can to get as much movement and velocity on every pitch that he throws. And on, on the one side, I think that's impressive seeing the sort of stuff that pitchers throw these days. Um, but on the other end, I, I would like to see more balls in play. I don't think the power game of baseball is aesthetically pleasing. Um, and I think that rules like this hopefully can just tilt the scale back a little bit more towards the eighties style baseball, because I do think actually the, the time of game, JJ said there haven't been major league games with this average game time that we're seeing in the minors since the eighties. And to be honest, the eighties game increasingly sounds more fun to me. I wish I had seen it uh, in person and maybe we can bring it back for the, for the twenties. Yeah, the argument about, oh, we're going to see this spike in injuries for pitchers, the evidence for that to me is very uh, flimsy and uncompelling, and it seems to be based around models, based around assumptions of fatigue and not actual data of what happens when um, pitchers have to pitch with a, a quicker pace. Um, so I... I I'm very, very skeptical of that argument. I mean, the, the other negative, I guess, would be that seeing p 
pitch is called as, you know, an automatic ball get called because a pitcher is not throwing the pitch in enough time is kind of lame. <laughs> like, but I you're think saying we're seeing, who, you're saying the, the penalty you think is lame or people who don't like the penalty is lame. No, I, I think it's, 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 it's sort of, it seems sort of strange, right. To have, mm-hmm. all right, well, this guy just took, this guy just walked on an automatic ball because the pitcher didn't throw the ball. Yeah. In I think, time. It, I it think feel- it's great. It's, it's a, it's a fantastic enforcement measure. Like just throw the ball in time. Well, well, right. Exactly. It's, it's going to work as an enforcement mechanism mm-hmm. long-term and we're seeing this, you know, significant uptick in violations in the minor leagues right now, because the rule is just now starting to be, enforce but yeah. as you have it go on throughout the season as long as you keep up that enforcement and you don't yep. have this uh, more and more lax enforcement mechanism where, where the umpires are getting more lenient on it as long as you keep that up you will train pitchers to know that they need mm-hmm. to improve uh improve the pace and and you you will see fewer violations over time not because of um, loosened enforcement of it just because pitchers are going to be trained to work at a, at a quicker pace. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is just pure speculation on my part, but I do think at least in related to the injury concerns that was stem from this, I think there might be a chance that pitcher injuries could decrease because if you are, if you aren't in, in an environment where tempo is required you can't fully rest up between pitches um we also have other rules coming into play that are restricting the amount of pitchers on a roster clearly everyone involved wants to tamp down on the relief pitchers all the substitutions and the incentives seem to be trying to be pushed out to get more innings out of starting pitching um with all these things happening i think we could move back to maybe uh, a mentality on the pitcher side where endurance and stamina and pitching efficiently is more of more at the forefront of their minds rather than I need to throw um, something that's going to miss a bat with every single pitch. Um, and, and if you have starters who are maybe throwing, I don't know what the percentage would be 80 or 90% instead of 100% intent on every pitch, maybe that puts us back in an environment where pitcher injuries decrease. It's it at least seems possible in my mind that the pitcher injuries are up because full intent throws for every single pitch is just more and more common now with, with mentalities for pitchers. And again, this is just pure conjecture and me kind of throwing out possibilities, but I wonder with all the pitcher injuries we've seen in the college game this year, we do see amateur players throwing harder, more frequently. And certainly in college um, with the way that college coaches call games, the amount of breaking stuff that these pitchers are throwing I feel very confident that the usage of those pitches has gone up. If you look at some of the top prospects, a lot of these guys who have plus or double plus breaking balls, they're throwing those pitches um, with high frequency. It's like over 25% of the time. In a lot of cases, this is something that I actually kind of want to look back more and see if there's the data that I can just see um, or, or look into like check with scouts or check with some teams to see if they have the numbers on this. Like are pitchers at the college level throwing these breaking balls more often? Um, how does just the intent um, to throw with 100% on every pitch, how does that impact um, just recovery rates? Uh, and maybe it's just as simple as, you know, 2020 and COVID and coming back from that has been very weird and pitchers haven't been able to build up, or maybe it's just, 
one of those years where we just happen to have a lot of pitcher injuries with a lot of the guys at the very top of the class. So it, it could be all sorts of things, but I'm at least optimistic that this rule could be beneficial in a number of different ways. I also think we'd have to wait until more data comes out to see, but I, I think a lot of pitchers also just won't be affected at all by the rules. Uh, but what you will see is the Pedro biases of the world where you're just watching either at the game or you're on TV and you're like, Oh my God, dude, like just throw the ball yeah. already. Like just these, these relievers that are out there just taking forever in between pitches where it's like, no, like you can't, you can't be doing that anymore. You've, <laughs> you can't be taking 40 plus seconds in between pitches it's going to take the, the the very slowest workers and you're going to speed them along. Uh, maybe with the, the way the pitch clocks are being enforced now, it, it encompasses some of the, you know, the guys in that kind of tier of um, speed of, uh, in, of time in between pitches above them and, and speeds them up too, which fine. That's, that's a good thing. Uh, but I actually expect a lot of pitchers won't be all that much. If, if any, um affected by it because there's there's already a lot of guys that that do work at this pace yeah absolutely and it's, it's always fun when a when a guy who just naturally has that pace takes the mound anyway so if we can just kind of force everyone to get at least closer to that i think it's good and, and it's not as if it's just on the pitchers here hitters have requirements under these new rules as well they have to be in the box i don't think they can have mm -hmm. both of their feet out of the box at any point within the at bat outside of like um, time being called, they have to be ready to hit at eight or nine seconds, I believe, um, in this current minor league iteration. And I'm sure the specific seconds will continue to be tweaked and altered as, as players kind of give feedback and we see what's, what's really necessary and what's maybe, um, a little bit too aggressive. But the thing for me is it's, it's a requirement for pitchers. It's a requirement for hitters. It should be enforced equally for everyone across the board. So it's not like you're putting, players at a disadvantage everyone is playing by the same rules which obviously needs to be the case um and i just think it's good for the game i'm excited about it and, and hopefully we see more balls in play um with that as well i know it, it's a little tricky with so many of the rule changes that are happening to encourage more action and encourage more balls in play you're not going to be able to isolate these rule changes to really see if, if this is having all of the effect on that but i would be curious if you could just implement this and no other changes uh, like with the shifting or with anything like that to see how much this actually does create more contact. Um, Cause it just seems like more contact is better. I mean, more balls and plays. Is yeah, fun. It, and we, and we've talked about the reduction in game time, just cause it's easy to show as a way to quantify the difference and, and the impact that the new rules are having, but really the, what what matters is not so much exactly the time of game, but just the quality mm -hmm. of the game. The, the 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 variable that matters is not how long it is, but the quality of mm -hmm. the product that you're watching. I mean, all I guess the, the best, sure a lot of the best number might be just like seconds per pitch. Like how how frequently is is the pitch coming? If you can get that to as low a number as possible, it seems like that'd be the best because you're just constantly watching something. Something is happening. Yeah, and, and just getting, I mean, at least anecdotally, what we're saying, the feedback from fans is that it is a better quality of product. Now, if a game goes, if a game goes four hours and it's an awesome 15 inning game, like Fantastic. That, I yeah, love that. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I love it. 
I don't want to see that stupid put a ghost runner or put yes. an automatic runner on on second base. Mm-hmm. I've again, in theory, I don't like that rule, and in practice, I really hate <laughs> that rule. At least at the, at the major league level, I get it. Like if you want to put it in the minor leagues and you know wrap things up at a certain time, you know, I, I certainly understand that. Especially, yeah, at the, I think know, at the minor league leagues, any level where winning is not. I guess you could say this anything under the major leagues, but certainly college teams are not going to look at you and say, Oh, our winning is any less important than the major leagues. Uh, but I do oh, yeah, think I for mean, sure the, major, the minors. Yeah. 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 For sure. in the minors we're really, we're focused on player development here. I think it makes a lot of sense to do, but I, I agree with you. I, I want no part of it at the major league level, regular season games or but, playoffs, whatever. But I'll, I mean, again, the, I think the variable that matters is, is the quality of the product, not so much the length of it. I mean, I'll, I'll watch on, and I, I think a lot of other people too, like if something is good on Netflix, like people will binge an entire season of a TV show on their couch for like 10 hours when, when it comes out because it, it just keeps your yeah. attention. It's good. This it's is quality. I was going to say, this is actually similar. Me and Maddie have been watching a couple of Hulu um like they're like fake documentaries um so they're fictionalized based on real events but it's almost similar to that because both of these are we know the outcome of both of these stories we're watching because they're based on truth and i'm just like constantly please get to the point because i feel like they have the opposite problem where they're dragging it out because they release them weekly and i think they just want you to to maintain your subscription so they're trying to get as much content as they can so the pace of some of these shows is absolutely terrible and i'm like just please let's get to the point Uh, but you're right for for shows and and really any content that's well-paced and gripping and fun like people will sink tons of time into anything if it's entertaining and people are enjoying it they'll watch it and and the actual time at the end of the day isn't going to matter if you watch a really epic game that goes into triple overtime or several extra innings and it's close the whole time like no one's going to leave there being really disappointed at, at the amount of time. I mean, maybe some, some grumpy old people, maybe people like Josh um, will just resent the fact that they were at a ballpark for four and a half hours, but for people who wanted to go see this game in the first place and they're rewarded with a really tense gripping extra inning game um, that's fine. And, and, and I don't think these pace of play measures are, are removing that at all. We're just removing the stuff that no one likes except for maybe advertisers. No, I think it's- <laughs> It's it's improving the look again. It's improving, I think, the quality of the product on the field um, by just eliminating so much of the just just the parts of the game that tend to drag drag the game. Do we have any idea when these um, pace of play measures could be put at the major league level? Could could it happen next year? I don't know off the top of my head. Uh... I think MLB would probably want to. <laughs> I, think yeah. that, I think they're they're certainly seeing the early mm-hmm. success of it. Again, I'm I'm curious what the if there will be some sort of cat and mouse game with the with the players in terms of trying to stretch it out a little bit more and and finding ways to get around it. Yeah, I'm really and I'm really scared the that like. the enforcement is going to get a little bit more lax as the season drags on. That that's my biggest concern at the moment. Yeah, so I, I'd be curious to see what the data looks like in in August, but if it's if it's even close to as good as it is right now uh, or I guess depending on your perspective as close to what we're seeing right now, 
I think MLB is going and, and the owners are going to try to push for this um, as as soon as they can at the major league level. Yeah, I mean they're well, they're, they're they're using the minor leagues as as a lab to experiment, mm-hmm. obviously, for the major leagues. They're not just doing this to, you know, just to mess around, <laughs> just, <laughs> just for fun, you know, just to increase yeah. the attendance for minor league teams. Yeah, no, I hope it I hope it comes soon, but um. Yeah, any anything else on pace of play or pitch clocks or anything like that? Any other rules, I guess, that, that you really liked? I haven't seen any of the I haven't seen any of the other uh like the restrictions of shifts, or I actually haven't been to a game that the balls and strikes are called by ABS either. I'm not sure if you've experienced either of those or if you have thoughts on that, but um if we don't have any, I guess we can just move on. I think, I mean, yeah, I think that is likely coming at some point, although that might still be a little bit, uh, a little bit further away. It seems like compared to this compared to what, I mean, the the pitch clock is, you you don't need the technology to be quite as you need the technology to be sharp before you implement it at the major league level. And you could argue it is now or not, but obviously with, with pitch clocks, there's, there's a lot less that goes into being able to, I think, implement that successfully mm-hmm. um, at the at the major league level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, speaking of pace, Ben, uh, your pace on the international reviews that we've had coming out on the site has been quite good. I feel like you only recently started putting those out, um, and right now, as we record this on Friday afternoon, uh, I think you have every division up outside of the NL West, um, and I'm sure those are coming shortly. So. What have the past few weeks been like for you? Um, what can people expect with these international reviews? And I guess, are there any teams or players who jump out that maybe you want to touch on? Yeah, the so you know a lot of these players signed on January fifteenth this year, and since then they've been in a lot of cases a little different. Sometimes for players from maybe say Venezuela or, or play, some other countries outside the Dominican Republic, but. Um, for the most part, a lot of these players have now been in camp at the Dominican academies for their respective clubs and in, in some cases playing games or, uh, you know, sim games, live BPs, that kind of stuff, uh, working with their coaching staff down there. So the I think the clubs have uh, an even better sense now of where these players are at compared to um, prior to January 15th. Um, Obviously the way the international signing process works is you can, um, you know, you can sign the player officially on, on January 15th, but a lot of these players are committing to clubs uh, multiple years in advance of that. And and when that happens, they, you know, generally stop going to, um, you know, showcases and, uh, you know, they'll, they'll still play games sometimes with their, with their academy, stuff like that, but they're not really being scouted in a competitive environment by uh, the other 29 clubs. So um, especially at that age, players can, can change a lot. Um, you got, you know, players who were, you know, five eleven who are now six foot two guys who were, running seven, three, seven, four, last time most people saw them. And now they're running six, 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 seven. So um, it's just a a byproduct of being that age and and getting taller, stronger, 
uh, faster, getting into the academy, uh, eating, eating all the food <laughs> they have there, uh, putting on weight, um, professional strength and conditioning program, professional throwing program. So these guys can change a lot uh, in the matter of uh, a few months. So we want to make sure we have uh, accurate and, and up-to-date information on uh, all these players for that every club signed. So, um, you know, I'm not saying we have a scouting report on every mm-hmm. kid who signed for 10 grand, uh, but we have, you know, we have a, you know, a pretty detailed report on every, every team's top of the class players, uh, you know, their, their mid range guys to know, and then the, uh, the sleepers to watch. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's fun to, and, and also a challenge too, to stay on top of a mm-hmm. lot of these players, given how quickly they change. I mean, even you know, I just got a, you know, I was just talking to a scout, uh, the other day that was like, Oh, after, uh, you know, read your report, uh, you know, after it went up, like in, in between the last time, <laughs> uh, in between the time your, uh, your report went up. And uh, his most recent bullpen, he's he's been up like three miles an hour on his fastball. Right, it's crazy. <laughs> I feel like um, that happens to not not the same degree um, as you deal with, but I feel like that happens while covering the draft too. Like we'll put out updates in season, try to hit uh, once a month when the season gets rolling, and I feel like sometimes it'll just be players who I haven't checked on in a, in a few weeks, and the changes that some of these high school players, even some of the college players can make in, in that short of time is, is so significant. And I'm sure it's to an even greater degree with the, the ages of the players you're talking about and with just the information gap that the industry has on those international players. So I, I guess, how quickly do you think the industry as a whole, not necessarily the clubs who have signed these players specifically, um, but, but how much would you say is the delay in the industry kind of catching up on, on who the modern current player is once these guys sign and actually start going to the uh, um, to their organizations and, and getting on a field. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a pretty significant lag time, which is part of the reason why we've shifted over the last couple of years to prior to January 15th, just doing a bonus board instead of a true talent ranking uh, just because of the, in part because of the challenges of of doing so before January fifteenth, because you can call a, a scout on a player and be like, "Hey, what did you see from you know this this outfielder?" Be like, "Well, I can tell you what I saw, and that last time I saw him was you know twelve months ago or eighteen months ago." Yeah, it's like, well, that's not that's not really fair to be writing about a player. Mm-hmm based on, you know, especially when they're still 16 or, or 17 years old, based on information from when, you know, people saw them 12, 18 months ago or, or more in some cases. So, um, you know, I, I think in, in certain programs or in certainly in certain countries, like it's, you know, it's easier to get updated looks maybe on a player in the Dominican Republic where you might just happen to, run into a player it's not that big of a country and and you're probably going to a you know so especially certain bigger programs where you're going to see their players for you know 2023 and 2024 and well all right well that's where you know the top guys for 
<laughs> his top guys for this year are also training there. So you might go see him take some BP or ground balls. If they happen to be playing a game, you might see him there. Uh, you know, especially like a bigger program like, you know, Jaime Ramos or, or Mejia, somebody like that. Um, you know, might, you know, might have more recent and updated looks at, at some of those players, but, um, but still, I mean, players are spread out all throughout the country and throughout a whole bunch of different programs. And then you throw in, you know, Venezuela and even bigger country where, where fewer um, scouts from, from outside of, of Venezuela are, are going in, um, you know, especially to see players who are already committed to, to other clubs. It's not really um, happening all that frequently. So, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely some lag time. And, and, and even now too, where, you know, it used to be players would sign July 2nd and then they moved it back to January 15th. Well, the players who signed July 2nd would go out and, and a lot of times play in uh, tricky league games, which are these unofficial games for international signings, like players who just signed and then Dominican instructional league, which is, you know, right after that and is, is, very game oriented. So you would have also, you know, a lot of pro scouts would go in and see those guys and, and you'd have, you know, if, if you're tricky league team, you know, let's say you're the reds and you're playing the Padres that day. Well, you're going to see, you know, your reds scout or, or reds coach on, on that club. You're going to see all the Padres guys who just signed. So you're going to have some updated looks and updated reports on those guys too. But, um, that that doesn't happen quite as much uh, right now, but um, but we're still you know we're still able to get some updated looks on on these guys who are in camp and and some of them too are in Arizona and Florida for uh, spring training or or extended spring training. A lot of them will still go back to the Dominican Summer League, but um, it's a good way. I mean, we have we'll, we'll probably end up with close to about two hundred or so reports on not just the top guys, but uh, uh, mid-range players, a whole bunch of lower bonus sleepers who will end up being better and and in some cases have already surpassed some of the uh, bigger bonus players just because like we talked about, these guys can uh, can change pretty pretty quickly. And when you're committing, uh, you know, when teams are committing so much of their bonus pool money uh, very early on in the process, these guys who develop, I don't even want to say later because in a lot of cases they're still 16 or, or 17, um, you know, they might be worth more money if, if everybody would seen them now and everybody had their full bonus pool uh, allotment, you know, uncommitted, uh, but there's probably just less money available at the time they, they do sign. So, um, you know, there is some relationship money or excuse me, some relationship between signing bonus money and talent, but um, certainly you can see uh, a lot of guys who did sign for lower bonuses have already surpassed some of the guys who are, um, you know, the, the bill, the, the bigger dollar guys in, in a class. Yeah. Outside of any of the, the pros and cons for players or teams specifically, when we start talking about a potential international draft coming, I, I mean, how excited are you about that, environment and that system being in place just for the coverage of these guys like from my perspective it seems like an absolute nightmare for you to try and get information like we, we've literally had to change how we go about ranking and, and just not ranking these players because of the process and what it is i imagine that's something that you're excited about where the information gap is going to be 
dramatically narrowed and you can actually kind of see these guys in real time with a draft seemingly on the horizon. And the, 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 the good thing about a draft is it would just slow down the process dramatically, right? Like if you go to the Dominican Republic, right? I get flyers and messages all the time about come to our showcase that we're having. Uh, it's in a few weeks. It's going to be the top players for, you know, 2024 and 2025. It's like, no, no, I don't, I, I have no interest in going to those events for for players who are so far away uh from signing and and it's just it's just too far whereas if if there is a draft like you said you know a lot of different pros and cons that um you know we will get into on a another episode coming up but uh the one obvious pro is it, it just slows down the process for for everybody where all right now showcases and events will be oriented around players for that upcoming uh years signings or that upcoming year's draft because you're not going to have those super early commitments that you're seeing now so um you know i think aside from the um obvious benefits of slowing things down for uh for players for their you know their trainers and coaches and and for clubs too is you just get more updated uh looks and updated information and, and teams have more time themselves to make better decisions on, um, on who they're, who they're drafting, who they're signing. Um, if the, if the process goes to a draft. Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, and then I, two more questions that I had pop up for you, Ben, um, are, are there any players as you've been doing these international reviews who, who have made a significant jump in just what you're hearing about them that you're really excited about? Um, that, that stand out to you, maybe a, a single player or a handful of players that, that you've been impressed with just with by the feedback that you've been getting. And then also who, when you're talking about the difficulties of signing these players, projecting these players, like lining up the right players to the biggest bonuses in the class, it's obviously this isn't new scouting in general is hard. Doing it for players at this age is incredibly hard. Are there any organizations who have consistently done it really well, or that you think their processes have been impressive uh, and, and what can we learn by those teams if, if they do exist? I mean, I, I think one player who's, uh, I think, really jumped up has been Luis Lara, uh, outfielder that the Brewers signed out of Venezuela. Um, you know, he was one of their bigger bonus guys, uh, not their top bonus guy, but he also is, uh, you know, you can see our Brewers top 30, right? He is our highest ranked Brewers international signing from this year. All of our international signings are in our top 30s or, you know, all of the ones who belong <laughs> or who we think belong in top 30s are ranked uh, in top 30s within their organizations um, right now. But I, I think Lara is a good example of somebody who is just, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, he got a lot of money, but I don't want to say he was under the radar, but I don't know that a ton of teams saw him a lot. Uh, he was, you know, five foot six early on in the process. Uh, he's still not that big. He's about, I should have known you were just going to pick out a yeah. short guy. Ben. Just, <laughs> you just keep hammering um, the brand. <laughs> yeah. Switch, you know, but I mean, switch hitter, super twitchy, bursty athlete, you know, true, 
true seven runner, good swing, a lot of contact from both sides. Uh, he's small, but he's not like slender and, and weak. Um, nor is he, I think physically maxed out either. He can, he can put a pretty good sting into the ball. So you have somebody who is a, uh, you know, premium position, uh, elite runner athleticism uh, and a mix of both the, you know, the, the raw tools and athleticism that you look for, but also some of the, the game skills and, and, and polish that you would, you know, ideally like to have too um, in, in a player. Usually you don't get both. Um, and obviously the knock on him is, you know, he's, he's not six, one, six, two, he's, he's five, nine. So, um, so that's, that's one thing that, uh, you know, I think people who, who might see him at first uh, might, um, you know, might be held back by, but um, I think there's a really uh, well-rounded athlete tools, skills, uh, premium position. And, and I think the, you know, the Brewers are one of those organizations that I think has done a, a good job, especially in, in Venezuela. Um, you know, we were very, uh, aggressive and how he ranked uh, Jefferson Kiro uh, after he signed out of Venezuela for I think 200,000 uh, Hedbert Perez the same way he got more money but you know 700,000 so um, so far I would say so good on, on both those guys especially Kiro is off to a really good start uh, this year and in, in low a as a, a 19 year old catcher there so I, I think um Luis Lara and I mean geez I mean Jackson Churio has been uh, outstanding in an extended spring for them another Venezuelan signing obviously he was a, a big big signing uh for them but a, a good year in the Dominican Summer League last year and um I mean at least through his first five games in extended he has four home runs um for you know for whatever that's worth it's it's a it's a pretty hey, that's good, good start for that's him pretty good <laughs> So, and, and like you said, Jefferson Kira hitting 361, 400, 556 through nine games with Carolina this year in low A. A pretty good start, too. Yeah. Yeah. So he, I mean, you know, that would be one, one example. Um, you know, Ricardo Cabrera, uh, another Venezuelan player, uh, he signed with the Reds, uh, shortstop, just uh, uh, another guy who's a, a really well rounded skill set, not quite the same. Uh, I think explosiveness as uh, as Luis Lara, but uh, you know certainly more more size, about six feet, projects to be a uh, you know more of like a, a wider, compact, uh, strong type of type of body, but um, good mix of hitting ability uh, in games. It's it's a good swing. There's sounds like there's he does power. a lot of things well. He seems like a really well rounded profile just based on your report. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some power that's coming in there and it's not like, like some, some players, especially at this age, like they'll grow, they'll start to, for the first time, grow into a little bit of power. Like they'll just start to be able to pull the ball over the fence or get it to the warning track or, or, or somewhere in that vicinity. And all of a sudden their swing changes, right. They're like, Ooh, I can, I can hit the ball out and their swing gets, a little steep, yep. a little bit uphill. I think this little... exact thing happened to Jackson Holiday last summer. Like he was a guy who mm. I had never seen him, but a lot of scouts talked about how he just had a really good approach at the plate, lots of contact. Then he started to grow into a little bit of that strength, realized he could hit the ball. The swing got longer. He got a little pull happy, more swing and miss. 
and this spring, it's kind of been best of both worlds. He's back to that contact, uh, all fields approach with that strength and is just kind of naturally getting to his power, letting the swing take care of itself and, and the power just kind of comes. So yeah, seeing that unfold with players in real time, it, it's, it's kind of crazy because had I not talked to those scouts, I would have assumed holiday was more of a like swing and miss guy last summer, but just knowing that background and knowing the strength gains that he had gone through, makes you kind of reevaluate what you're actually seeing. Yeah. It almost becomes like a trap for the player. The first time they can start to do that. But the, the good thing with, with Cabrera is he's starting to come into power and he's not really changing his approach to, uh, to be able to tap into that power uh, either. So, um, you know, plus run, I, I think just based on the way he's built, that probably backs up. So, um, you know, maybe it's shortstop, maybe it's third or possibly second long-term, but um, just a, like you said, a really well-rounded uh, player, obviously, you know, Roderick Arias too, with the uh, Yankees and, uh, you know, switch hitting uh, shortstop who, I mean, geez, his, his best tool. I mean, it's not why they signed him, but his, his best tool was like a, I think if you're being conservative, a, a seven arm, you can go 80 on it if, if you want, but um, you know, twitchy athlete plus speed, true shortstop um, outstanding arm and, and just a really good swing from uh, both sides of the play with pretty good power too. Uh, especially the Yankees for, already have uh, a, a shortstop, young... Ben. Yeah. They already have a good that's shortstop prospect. <laughs> yeah. Whenever, yeah. Whenever a, tweet if i tweet like a signing photo out and then it starts to get tweeted around to a bunch of people who don't follow me it is kind of incredible how many people respond like it's always we have a shortstop it's it's always yankees fans that i see this with constantly i don't know if it's Uh, i don't know if it's because i'm just seeing a lot more of the casual yankees fans every fan base i'm sure has fans who do this but and, and it's probably just the nature of like their current group of prospects and how volpe has been but man, I see it constantly with them. <laughs> I think it's just that the Yankees have more fans than anybody else, which is probably why you're seeing it. Yeah, from, absolutely. From them. But I mean, the Blue Jays, we probably had like a bunch clubs. of Blue Jays fans who were, who were saying the same thing, but you're right. I'm, I'm going to be. It happened. The Cubs, the Cubs, the Cubs signed a few players um, the other, the other day. And I, tweeted out some of them and some of the responses was like don't we have christian hernandez and it's like <laughs> yeah but who do you think is going to play shortstop on your two dsl teams or second or third or if, if it ever starts happening for pitchers then i'll know we've, we've reached a new level so <laughs> i don't think yeah nobody's complained ever we have too much pitching uh, already I, i've I, seen some people who are mad that teams continue to draft a lot of pitchers I bet you could easily uh, find some Angels fans after last year who were very upset that they drafted exclusively pitchers. Or there are probably have been some teams um, who have gone pitching heavy a few years in a row and fans are upset about it. I, I feel like you could find that pretty easily. I mean, I could see saying, well, why are we drafting, you know, Sam Bachman and Khalil Watson is on the board or something like that. I mean, there's yeah. an opportunity cost to that or the yeah. Angels one. I, 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 kind of get that I, i'm not a fan of going all in on just pitchers for mm-hmm. your draft um definitely don't do that this year yeah um i mean the other i mean what, what i would say one guy too i'm i'm really excited to see is uh lazaro montez cuban outfielder that the 
Always get Mariners excited for the signs. Cuban outfielders. Let's go. Yeah. I mean, if you, I mean, again, I like guys who are five nine. I also like guys who are six four and are built like Jordan Alvarez. Impossible. <laughs> yeah. And just have monster power. Um, I mean, and and the thing too is I, I don't get super excited usually about you know big physically mature players who are you know at 16 or 17 who can just um you know mash the ball in batting practice and uh then when the game comes on you're like oh what what happened to those loud where were you at on where were you at on (laughs) reese hines in the 2019 draft i know you saw him at the baseball Uh, america or baseball factory event yeah i think reese hines still probably has turned in the most impressive high school batting practice that i've ever seen it's probably the one well, we that yeah that with. yeah that home run derby he was in at the under armor game was it a home run derby pretty... or was it yeah well think... they had bp and they had and they were both super impressive yeah, just yeah. in terms of the raw power but with i would say with him and austin hendrick yeah i mean what's what's not to like about the bat speed and the the raw power but in for, for different reasons with, with both of them uh, with Hendrick, it was more of some of the, uh, the pitch recognition, that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I, I need to see some pure hitting ability to, to go with it too. Um, and, and that's what I like about Lazaro Montes is yeah, there is, there is big raw power. Uh, he could be a 30 plus home run type guy. Uh, but the swing also works really well. Uh, and in, in games, you, you see the power translating there, not just to the pull side, but, but the opposite way too. Uh, you know, the risk with him is he's gigantic already and uh, he's not going to get any smaller. So I uh, hope he can stay in a corner outfield spot, but uh, he maybe ends up at first base, but uh, if he turns into a, a Jordan Alvarez type hitter, uh, I think the Mariners will will be thrilled with, uh, well, with that absolutely. outcome. Yeah, so definitely go check out all of Ben's international reviews. Um, I don't know when the last one is going up, but you'll have plenty of reading in front of you if you get started now as you listen to this podcast. Um, and all the divisions should be available um, shortly. But uh, Yeah, we've been dropping a, a division every day, so we'll have the NL West go on uh on monday we need cool. we need six days in the week just to six weekdays just to hey, just throw it on a saturday you know? outcome a little weekend reading um we also had a staff mock draft this week which i don't even know why i just teed it up as a staff mock draft it's a staff draft really <laughs> i hate um i i specifically tweeted it out as such and i, I think within five minutes of me tweeting it, people were already quote tweeting and saying, look, look who such and such team was taking uh, in this mock draft. And I'm like, no, 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 not a mock draft. Uh, for me, I mean, for, for people who are reading it all, maybe the distinction is, is meaningless, but for me, and certainly us at Baseball America, it's a completely different process. The goals are entirely different and we're putting no effort into, I wouldn't say no effort, like people are thinking about this as they make the picks, but we're just drafting in this staff draft for players who we like and who we personally would take if we were in this situation um, as the board moves on with a mock draft, there's 
an intent to try and figure out which teams are going to draft which players where, which players are going in which round based on talent, based on industry chatter. The mock drafts are much harder to do and they're a lot, they're a lot more difficult and they involve a lot more work. The staff draft is much more of a like exercise in, in seeing like which players do staffers like, why, why do we take one player over another? Are there any players on the board who are maybe consensus in one spot, but for whatever reason they fall on our board and generally just to, to have a fun exercise, think through some of these players and then throw some more notes about what these players have been doing recently. So they're very distinct in my mind. I'm not sure if I'm just being um, like difficult in, in separating the two, but they're definitely very different in my mind. And I don't think there's something that you want, you need to read too much into um, in, in terms of thinking about what your team is going to be doing three months from now. But we did have a staff draft. Obviously, Ben took some short players in this draft. I wanted to kind of walk through this um, and, and just talk through it because now you, you guys can pull it up as you listen along or you can just hear us go through the draft, but I wanted to work through it because I do think there are some interesting takeaways and some interesting differences that will probably happen in the actual draft. Um, but we had seven people who participated. It was myself and Ben, obviously, Jeff Ponce, Tom Lapari, um, JJ Cooper, Chris Trinkle, and Savannah McCann were all the people who were drafting. Um, I wound up with the fourth pick. You picked third, Ben. Um, but let's just kind of go from the top and, and work through this draft. We can spend as much time or as little on, on picks, depending on how many thoughts you might have about it or how interesting they were. But first pick was Jeff. I was curious with this, with this pick, because in each of our mocks so far this year, Drew Jones has been the selection. I know Jeff is, is very analytically inclined, and, and my feeling is that he probably leans more towards college. I was curious if he was going to take one of these college hitters. Uh, because the Orioles in the past have also been pretty college heavy. And I was just wondering uh, who he would take, but he did take Drew Jones. Any, any surprises there or thoughts on that pick? Do you, th yeah. Do you think Drew Jones is not, not, is he the best player available? Cause he is number one in our rankings, at least at the moment, but do you think he's the favorite to go one, one, or do you think that, the Orioles are more likely to go the college route that they've gone with some, some pretty good college hitters, whether it's, you know, Brooks Lee or maybe Kevin Parada is a little less likely uh, when you just, when you do have Adley Rushman there, uh, although Kevin Parada's back, I'm sure could profile it, um, you know, another position too, or, you know, with Jace Young, somebody, um, like that yeah. or, or do you get the sense that drew jones might be the type of guy or, or or somebody else could could be that guy for the orioles at one one i hope that we get more more of a sense of, of who they're leaning as we get closer now i don't feel like i have any strong conviction that, that they're locked in on one player uh or that there's a player in this class who's like clearly the top talent if you'd asked me maybe two weeks ago i would have said drew is probably that guy Lately, we've been getting a lot of Brooks Lee love. Um, I know there are a lot of a lot of scouts who think he could be a legitimate one-one pick. He makes sense just based on what Baltimore has done recently. If they want to keep taking players of that profile, um, I, I mean, he's performing at the level that makes sense just on talent to go there as well. Just outside of any any sort of um, biases or or any sort of um, tendencies that a team picking in the top spot might have. I think he fits there on talent. I think he makes sense with the club there too. So I don't feel strongly either way. 
Um, and, it, and it seems like the way that Elijah Green has performed this year too with his tool set, like he certainly makes sense at the top as well. Uh, and with Baltimore, it's tough too because while the last time they picked in in the one one hole, they didn't they didn't play any of the uh, under slotting games. They've they've been a team who has certainly done that while picking in the top five. Um, whether or not they do that this year, I think will depend on at the end of the process if there's a clear number one player. I think if if we do get to that point and it is Drew Jones or maybe Brooks Lee just takes uh, takes another step forward and maybe at the end of this process we're saying Brooks Lee is the clear top player in the class. I think they would probably just take the best player, but I don't say that with much confidence just because of how they've operated. So I really don't know. I think, I think Drew Jones or Brooks Lee for me are the probably favorites. Um, but I use that term loosely because we still have a lot of time to go. How excited are you for the Orioles to get back into the playoffs and not be picking at the top of the draft? It'll be, it'll be great draft. It'll be great. I think <laughs> I'm trying to think where did they pick in 2018? Cause that would have been the first year that I actually did mocks that year at the top. It was easy because Casey Mize for a while with Detroit was like kind of the locked in guy. Yeah. The Orioles didn't pick until 11 that year. Maybe that's why it was so much easier. It, it did feel like 2018 was easier to mock and you're right. You've, you've just figured it out and the Orioles are just not involved at the top. So, so it made my life a lot easier. I can't wait. I can't yeah. wait till they're not picking. Although the, are the pirates kind of going the same? It feels like route it, right? Too, though. Yeah, I mean, it feels the way like they've operated. They seem like another team that wants to. And again, it's it's always tough to read into this too much because you could you could say every year, well, this is just how the class shaped up that year. There are a lot of players in the same tier. The pirates viewed all these players similarly, and so if you're you're operating with five players who you view as roughly similar, then it makes sense to just find who will take the best deal so you can improve your board later on. But it, it seems like they have some similar tendencies, certainly. Um, yeah, but with the second pick, Diamondbacks, this is Tom Lapari drafting. I knew he liked Elijah Green going into this. He, he had done a little scouts view breakdown on Green, and just how he raved about his tools, about the swing, about the physicality. That made some sense. This one... This one, I don't know, fits the tendencies we've seen with Arizona, but at the same time, Elijah Green is such a special talent and his tool set is so explosive that it wouldn't be shocking to me if this was the pick in real life. But what did you think about this pick and how excited were you for Tamar to be available on the board with you picking in the three-hole, Ben? Well, well, well with the D-backs, how, I mean, how would you contrast Elijah Green with, say, Jordan Lawler? Who are I mean, I mean, Lawler seems like a you know another athletic premium position guy who also had some swing and miss to him. Uh, also with you know good game performance as well uh, with a lot of tools. Maybe not you know Elijah Green size or 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 that level of tools and and explosion. I, I, they're they're different kind of players but do you think there could be some commonalities mm -hmm. to to what the d-backs look for or but i mean you see them I, like i think back to like corbin carroll right is a, a very yeah. different type of player and you can like different types of players and it depends where you're mm -hmm. picking in the draft and certainly elijah green fits 
Mm-hmm. At the top of the draft, uh, or do you think it's more likely they go some other route with the uh, with number two? No, I think you make a, a really good point. There, there are a, a few more similarities than I would have just expected off the top of my head with the Lawler pick. I think where you're picking in the draft really does matter. Um, for a lot of these really hitter-ish players, the D-backs have picked, they were picking in the middle of the rounds, um, taking a guy like Corbin Carroll at 16, um, taking a guy like Matt McLean out of high school a few years before that or a year before that was 25 is at the back of the first but just a lot of their hitters have that hitter ish quality um but again the last time they were picking this high was 2015 um when they took Dansby Swanson and the entire group was was a little bit different back then so it is hard to compare and contrast directly um but I I think the Lawler points you make are good because Elijah was a performer over the summer not in the same way that Jordan was but I mean, he has been a guy who's accessed his power as as frequently and as consistently as any premium slugging prospect in high school that I've seen. Um, Lawler did have those swing and miss questions during the spring a little bit more than he did the summer um, prior to his draft year. But no, I think those are those are good calls. And really, Elijah is probably the the biggest outlier athlete, certainly that I've seen in the draft since covering it. I don't know how far back you would have to go to get to an athlete who is, who is as unique or as dynamic as he is. Um, so he certainly fits at top. How good has Jordan Lawler been too? Yeah, he's, so he's been fantastic. I mean, really a number of those high school shortstops have been great. This, this 2021 high school class has a chance to be really good. I mean, it's, it's very early, obviously, but um, it's, it's been fun to see. No swing looks good. Approach looks good driving the ball with with impact driving the ball with impact to right center to um yeah he <laughs> he's checking a lot of boxes right now so not that you, like you said not that you could have gone wrong for the most part <laughs> picking a high school shortstop in the first round uh last year no there's definitely not as much this year but that demographic was incredible last year a historic year for for that demographic um so, yeah, again, it's still crazy that Khalil fell as far as he did, and, and he's off to a really strong start as well. But, Ben, take us through number three here. You're picking with the third pick for the Rangers. You took Tamar Johnson. I was picking behind you. I, I kind of figured I wouldn't have a chance to take Tamar. Um, Correct. I mean, how, how I guess how excited were you to have him here? And if you were picking one or two, would you have taken him in those spots as well? I, I if, if I had the first pick, I would. I think I would take Termar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that's necessarily going to be my answer in July. We'll see a little bit more on some of these college hitters and how it plays out mm-hmm. the rest of the year. But I obviously have a ton of conviction in Termar Johnson's hitting ability, power, um, you know, ability to play somewhere in the infield, hands, baseball IQ. I don't think anybody else needs to hear me talk <laughs> anymore about how much I love Tamar Johnson. Yeah. But I, I do also think there's a potential fit there with the Rangers who have in previous years, or I mean, it's still John Daniels, I guess, is is in charge. But the, a lot of the underlying people or philosophies have shifted, I think, in in recent years where before they were, you know, drafting the Lewis Brinsons and Bubba Thompsons and, uh, you know, Joey Gallo. And obviously in Gallo's case, it, it worked out. But um, some of these guys with a lot of swing and miss risk, but some, you know, really good athletes or, you know, one super loud carrying tool, obviously, in the case of uh, Joey Gallo, oh, arm strength too, obviously. <laughs> um, 
with him, but um, you're, you're starting to see them shift now toward more um, hitter-ish guys, uh, both in, I think, the draft, uh, internationally too, uh, not worrying as much about size. I mean, Luis Angel Acuna is probably a similar similar in height and uh, body type, I would say even, to, to Termar. Um, not that, you know, Luis Angel Acuna is this caliber of, of player, but he's a, a good prospect for them. Um, and one of their priority guys from that international class. So um, I, I do think that, like we've talked about, there are going to be teams that I think will be scared off by the size or, or just, you know, the future body projection with Tamar Johnson. Uh, I said before, I, I think that will be a, a mistake. Uh, but I think that the Rangers are, are one of these clubs picking toward the top of the draft that I don't think will be scared off by that. doesn't mean they're going to take him. Obviously like there's other, you know, good players who fit mm-hmm. in this range, but I, I think there is a potential fit to yeah. um, with, with the, with the real Texas Rangers. Yeah. This one is, this one is tricky for me because I mean, the Rangers have been very college heavy the last few years in the first round. It's been Josh Young, Justin Foskey, Jack Leiter, uh, last year when they were picking two with Henry Davis going in front of them, they really didn't have any college hitters that, that made a ton of sense um, at that spot on the board. They're a team that, that has generally played it fairly straight up, or at least they did last year with Lighter, giving him the biggest bonus in the class. I'm curious how they would react to a board like this in front of them with a number of really imp- impressive college hitters that I think fit in this range here. A Brooks Lee makes sense to me. Uh, Kevin Parada makes sense to me. Uh, a few of the other college hitters could make sense in this spot. And I'm not sure if in the past they've just gone college with Foscue and Young because they didn't have access to some of the better high school bats or high school position players in those class. Like in 2019, if they're picking a few spots higher, do they take uh, a Riley Green or CJ Abrams if they, if they have that player available or do they still stick with a maybe traditionally safer profile of the college hitter this year? it's a really good group of those college bats and, and just with the, where, where, where they've gone in, in previous years, or at least recently, it would not shock me at all. Like I think Brooks Lee would be a guy who would be a little surprising to fall outside of the top three at this point. And that's why me picking number four, the pirates. Um, I mean, personally, I, I would have, if I wasn't picking for the pirates, I would have had a much tougher decision. I think Brooks Lee and Kevin Parada are the two guys that would be deciding between Obviously, like my personal bias for Parada, just constantly seeing him perform in front of me, dating back to his his junior year in high school. Um, it does a lot to move the needle for me, the power output. Um, but with the Pirates just having taken Henry Davis, I went with Brooks Lee, number four. Um, I think only a week ago, he was hitting above 400, 31 walks to 12 strikeouts, seven home runs, but a ton of doubles. Of the college hitters in this class, I think he probably gives you the best defensive value as well so if you think he's the best pure hitter he's a shortstop now probably going to move to third base maybe second base in the future Um, but still if you can wind up with a left side of the infield college bat that you think is the best pure hitter in the class with the sort of production he has I think you feel really good about that player especially at number four really the only risk is is like the medical he's dealt with some injuries in the past Um, and I guess maybe if you're really skeptical you wonder about what sort of power production he gets to but I think he's He's such a good hitter that that the power is going to come um, if he wants it to come. Do you think there's a gap right now between Brooks Lee, Kevin Parada, mm. and say like 
Jacob Berry, Susak, Chase Young, that yeah, group of college I, um, I, I think Brooks Lee seems, I would, I would say probably yes, just based on the feedback that I've been getting recently. It seems like everyone in the industry really likes Brooks, whereas with a guy like Parada or with Susak, there's a little bit um, like more differences of opinion, whether that's with defense with Parada uh, or what you think of the body. It, it feels that way, I would say. Um, probably have a better feel the next week or so as i continue to get more more feedback from from higher ups you're going to be deciding between these players but but it certainly feels like that right now um at five jj's picking for the nationals he took kevin prada i think this pick makes a lot of sense um i've heard a lot of people who say prada could be going uh top five in the draft i've talked to some people who think kevin prada is the best pure hitter in the class i know Prada and Brooks Lee were viewed fairly similarly in, in terms of their bat-to-ball skills and just hitting ability out of high school. And Prada has gone from nine home runs uh, last year in 52 games to leading Division One hitters with 18 home runs in 38 games this year. I think the power output is real. The strength gains are real. Um, I really have very few questions about any offensive, any of Prada's offensive profile. I guess the defense is going to be the big question for him. Um, and for me, even if you don't think he's going to catch, who cares? Like the bat is the bat is good enough. But curious what you think, Ben. Yeah, I mean, offensively, what's what's not to like? It's like here's my to... question: what What do you what does Parada do worse than Henry Davis? He throws. He certainly throws worse. I think Parada is a better prospect across the board um, to Henry Davis, and he was the one one last year. That's that's what I think. Uh, again, yeah. I've, I've always been a Parada guy. Tell me, outside of throwing strength, what do you like more about Henry Davis? Well, you also didn't say that Henry Davis was the number one player available. Sure. In the draft last year, he he mm-hmm. went one one. Where, where, where do we have him? Like fourth or we fifth? Had him fifth, or... I believe. I'll double check right now. Right. Just to make sure. So you know we're putting Parada in that same region at least mm-hmm. <laughs> um right now so hey yeah i think what would you say people have more at least at the time we had henry Davis four in... excuse me we had kamar five so would you say people at the time had more confidence in henry davis sticking behind the plate than kevin parada right now or, or do you think the receiving is actually maybe similar in like blocking and receiving, obviously taking throwing out of the consideration because Davis obviously has an edge mm-hmm. there. How, how would that stack up? Otherwise? I mean, we had, we had, I think it was similar. Some people thought Henry Davis was really good. I, I guess the difference is there, there were some people that I talked to who thought Henry Davis would be a really good catcher. Whereas with Parada, I think most of the, the people highest on him just think he's going to be solid. Um, but there were also people who thought that he needed to work on his blocking and his receiving at the same time. Um, the, the arm is obviously the biggest separator between these two. Davis had a double plus arm dating back to high school. But I think for me, the separator is just the hit tool. It's it's a much more, I mean, it's not more traditional because Kim Prada does have this unique load at the beginning of his swing, or I guess before his load, his like his setup at the plate is quite odd. But I mean, look at look at Kevin Parada and Henry Davis, how they were viewed as hitting prospects in high school it's entirely different leagues i think louisville did a really good job with henry and henry himself did a really good job in college but henry last year never felt like he was the sort of hitter 
it was a down college hitting class and he was the best of the crop is the mm-hmm. best way I can put it. And, and this year at the top, it seems like quite a good hitting, hitting group. And among that group, I think Parada has a case as the best. Whereas if Henry Davis was in this class, I think he would be viewed more in the kind of the, the range. We probably have Daniel Susak at this point. That's, that's probably yeah, it now. Yeah, the way Parada's barrel comes through the zone is is really good. It's it's in there. It's on playing so early. You could see. Mm-hmm. I think Josh posted a good open side video of, of one of his home runs. You could just see the the bat gets on plane with the pitch so early. So you can see why he has all those home runs and all that damage that he can do to right center field. Where even if he's not not out front to be able to pull the ball uh with precise timing and if he's a little bit later on it he still has the swing path and the strength to be able to drive the ball with with impact to uh to the opposite field so um yeah that's uh, like we said offensively <laughs> it's there's there's a lot to to like with him so i could see i could definitely see him going top five picks uh, next, we had the Marlins. Uh, Chris Chris Trinkle was picking for the Marlins. He went with Jacob Berry um, with Louisiana State. I think Berry is solidly in this top tier of college hitters as well. Um, in his first year in the SEC, he's kind of just continued to produce at the same level he did a year ago with Arizona. Um, really good bat, good on base skills, solid power. He's got 10 home runs. He's been playing the field more this year, which is good. He's played third base. He's played some outfield. Um, he, he's certainly a bat first player moving forward. I don't think he's going to give you a ton of value defensively, but he's continued to hit in the best conference in college baseball, more walks than strikeouts. Um, so I think this is maybe a, it feels like a safer pick. I think there's maybe some more upside on the board available based on our staff draft, but this feels like a a pretty solid all around pick, um, in my mind for Chris. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I could see him going this high i think the some of the defensive limitations with him concern me more where uh there's certainly some high school hitters or, or even some college hitters too who um who i liked and i think he alluded to some guys with some more some more upside too um yeah so again i i could i could see him going here in in the top 10 it's not like i'd be surprised but uh i'm not uh, uh i'm not I'm loving jacob berry creek pick chris sorry he's all right. i mean yeah he's, <laughs> I guess he's, my I mean, question like would be said, if you have if, if you want barry here you have to believe he's a better hitter than a guy like jace young who who's outperforming him in the big 12 um right. is one of the the best i mean he's leading he's near the top but I, I don't know exactly where he is in walks he's got 43 walks 24 strikeouts 11 home runs he's got similar power production um just in the past um, in college, and he's going to give you better defensive value, whether, whether or not you like him as a defender at second base, um, range has always been a question mark for him. I think the fielding percentage has actually steadily ticked up year over year with Jace Young in college, how strong a, a metric that is for his actual defensive improvement, I think is up for grabs, but certainly, um, has improved and cut down the errors, but a guy like that, if you want a college hitter, I personally think young would be better just because you have a chance to get someone who's not limited to just first base defensively with similar or better production. Um, and, and then the guy I would probably take in this spot would be Dylan Lesko who Savannah took at number seven for the Cubs. 
Lesko is a wild card. Um, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen with him moving forward because he didn't pitch uh, the week after the NHSI. Um, hopefully there's nothing going on uh, too serious with his arm. Nothing official that I've heard at this point as we're recording this podcast, but just with the way that we've dealt with pitcher injuries this year, I'm just scared of something happening with him. But if he's healthy, I think Lesko is, is far and away the biggest upside talent on the board, probably going back all the way to like your pick at three, Ben. Like, I mean, there's a chance that Lesko is like a top three talent in this class, just based on stuff, um, his polish. I mean, it's a potential front of the rotation arm. And the gap between him and the next pitcher is, is quite wide in my mind this year. Yeah. I mean, the, like you said, the combination of stuff across the board too. It's not like, Oh, he's got a great fastball and snaps off a really good breaking ball. And the changeup is a work in progress or something like that with a lot of high school pitchers where they're, they're more two pitch guys and you see some feel for a third with him. I mean, it's a chance for three pitches. That'll be 60 to 70. I mean, I don't want to say a war, but like maybe with the changeup, it's, it's just that good. I mean, when you see these high school hitters who are just have absolutely no chance when he's throwing that change, I mean, he, he could go and pitch in low a tomorrow. I mean, assuming he's healthy and, and dominate his way through, yep. through a lineup, I, I'd have very little concern about him doing that um i could probably pitch at an even higher level so that that combination of stuff polish um and be a i think a relatively fast mover again health permitting which is such a such an x factor with every pitcher but especially Mm -hmm. high school pitchers who we haven't seen go through you know even a once a week college workload which we're seeing this year that a lot of pitchers just even that is, is enough to cause them to break down. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they certainly, certainly a lot of guys will come back from uh, Tommy John surgery, but um, that's, man, I, I just, I just philosophically, I, I'd have a hard time taking a high school pitcher myself this high, but I, I certainly, I mean, I certainly get it. Um, mm. The, like you said, and, and there's no other college pitcher who would, yeah. uh, you know, be the, be the option here. If you're looking to go for pitching. Yeah. No one, no one even close on the college side. And and unlike you, I think I would be a little more comfortable taking the high school pitcher, especially in this range when we're outside of those like top five players or so, I'd feel plenty comfortable with that, but I am uh, much more risk tolerant when it comes to players I would take in the draft than, than you, I think Ben Um, number eight, when it comes to to pitchers, I think that's for sure. Very fair. I I get really, I get really excited with the high school pitchers and I know the demographic is is terrifying, but look at Grayson Rodriguez. He was a high school pitcher looking pretty, pretty freaking good right now. Um, so I think there's a lot of upsides. Well, sure. It's it's easy to say you take Grayson Rodriguez. Now you got a bunch of years in hindsight, but you still have to be the team to pull the trigger. No, but I'm, my point is we would have said this about Forrest Whitley also oh yeah, the, yeah like the when he was dominating yeah i'm in, willing to take on the league. misses for for the chance of getting a hit i mean it, it if you can get a front of the rotation pitcher that's incredibly difficult to find and, and you you have to take on the chance of, of missing to get those guys so i think i'm more willing to just have the misses but maybe that's crazy uh, i don't number- think it's 
yeah, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's it's just a matter of opportunity cost. It's it's a, it's a trade off, right? Where I, mm-hmm. I think you have significant impact hitters who are still here on the board, and then I think I also think like the the high school pitching, and we'll you know we'll talk about some more of these guys later on. But there's still some pretty good arms, not Dylan Lesko level, who are going to be available. Um, yeah, at the back of the first round, or or where the Cubs pick you know, with their, with their next pick too. The thing for me with Lesko and, and maybe this has been true of many other pitchers, but he's, he's far and away, not far and away. He's, he's probably the best high school pitcher I've ever seen. And again, outside of health, I just don't see where the hole in his game is. I I think he can do everything. So that's why I feel very strongly about Lesko specifically. Um, But yeah, in general, I think I'm more, more willing to take on the risk of pitchers, but at number eight for the twins, Jeff is back. Um, his first uh, or his second pick, the first guy to, to pick again. Um, and we're just going in, in order here. So ever, we're going through our one through seven order throughout the whole first round. Um, Jeff took Daniel Susak. He said he's he's one of the few people who thinks there is a, a solid Susak versus Parada debate. Um, but certainly Daniel Susak has, has performed very well. Right now he's hitting 382, 434, 618. He has power. Jeff thinks he has a better shot to catch than Parada. Um, I do think there's a chance that Susak could go in this range in the actual draft. I mean, premium college catchers who can hit, that's a very valuable um, profile for teams, and, and it routinely gets pushed up the board. Um, I don't think this is just like the, the Shea Langoliers pick that the Braves made a few years ago, but in the way that Shea continued to kind of keep moving up the board, even with his injury, um, and it seems like Daniel Susak is certainly a better hitting prospect than Shea was at the same time. Uh, any thoughts on this pick, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think Susak makes it past the top 12, 15 or, or so players. So I, I would not be surprised to see him go yep. somewhere, somewhere toward the, the back of the top 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, number nine of the Royals, Tom took Jace Young. And just based on the way we were talking about Jace previously, um, probably not surprising. I think this is a really good value. Curious to see where he falls because I haven't heard as much buzz that like I've heard with, with Brooks Lee, but I mean, his numbers and his, his track record as a hitter, his bloodlines, like it's really impressive. And I don't know if people are just scared of the defense or, or, I mean, the the actual swing itself is a little bit unorthodox, but I mean, we've seen so many players do it with different swings. That doesn't bother me too much. Like I'm, I'm not the mechanics guru here who can tell you why that would prohibit him to succeed at the next level. It seems like he just gets on time, has great understanding of the zone, has power, has bat to ball skills, another really just good offensive profile overall for me. Yeah, track record, outstanding strike zone discipline. I think it's what close to twice as many walks as strikeouts this year. Another guy. I think I think this is probably the right range for him. And then you were back on the back on the clock at number ten for the Rockies. Ben, what was going through your mind when you had uh, the board as it kind of fell to you? How many, which players were you thinking about? And I'm gonna be honest, I was a little surprised that you you took Chase Delotter from James Madison, first college outfielder off the board. Yeah, so I thought maybe I could, you know, with with Jeff picking again for the Guardians at sixteen, I didn't think I'd get Chase Delotter there past him for my next pick um but i i so i i was torn i think between delouder and cam collier uh because i i just adore both of those players um 
Cam Collier, what he's doing right now is basically a high school junior in one of the top junior colleges in the country uh, is, is extremely impressive. I love his swing. He generates like effortless power. He, he knows the strike zone. He has really good back control, um, bigger body, third baseman, um, with a strong arm. I think he has a, a chance to stick at third base. There, there is some risk. He outgrows the position, but man, I, I just love his bat. It, it reminds me of watching Raphael Devers when he was the same age. I mean, the, the swing works a little bit differently, but a lot of similar traits um, where I might end up kicking myself for, uh, for passing on Cam with this pick. Um and I might do it differently by <laughs> by the end of the, the this this draft process when we're in in July. But uh, Chase Delauder too, man. He's, I mean, I know he had that kind of rough, um, you know, intro in in this year. But I mean, otherwise, his track record of hitting is pretty remarkable. Um, yep. Both uh, both uh, you know at James Madison, which is not a not a powerhouse, but. Uh, the the numbers that he's posting in terms of the you know hitting ability contact drawing walks hitting for power mm-hmm. uh, it really jumps off the page the success he had at the Cape uh, last summer and and he's, he's pretty this. young too w- without that Cape performance is this a player that you'd be a lot more skeptical of would you take him in the spot if he didn't have the Cape Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Um, but I think seeing him doing it with with wood bats in the Cape, the reports yep. from from last summer to go with the with the performance. Uh, he's still twenty. He doesn't turn twenty one until after the season, so he's on the younger side too. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. That makes a huge difference for you know twenty versus twenty one. But um, just just yeah, the combination of hitting ability, strike zone discipline, uh, you know, power tools to match too. So um, again, I'm, I might end up kicking myself for, for passing on, on Cam Collier here. Um, but uh, I yeah. thought maybe I could sneak him in with my, my next pick. Well, I think you, with this pick, you, with the lottery, you can feel pretty good about his production overall, just what he's done in college. And he's still a guy who has a lot of upside for, for a college player. The tool set is, is fairly unique um, to still be there in college. Um, so at 11, uh, I'm picking for the Mets. Um, and, and if you know me, you're probably not too surprised at this pick. I took Jackson Holiday, probably the best high school shortstop in the class, depending on how, how you classify Tamar Johnson in your mind. Um, there's a chance Tamar could be drafted as a shortstop. Like when I think about him, I think about him as a second baseman. Maybe that's that's unfair and I shouldn't do that. But for me, I think Holiday is the best high school shortstop in this class who projects the stick of the position moving forward. He's, he checks all the boxes, projectable, has bat to ball skills, developing power. We've seen strength gains this spring. The reports are fantastic from all the scouts that I've talked to and heard from um, just about his tools across the board, improving with the strengths gains. He still has projection remaining big league bloodlines. He's left-handed. I like his actions defensively. I think there's a chance he could go in the top 10 picks. And so I'm very happy to get him at number 11. Uh, with the Mets and for me it was it was kind of lucky that I got this pick because I'll also get the number 14 pick with the Mets um, a few picks later but I think 
yeah, Ben, say what you want about this pick, but the next pick I feel like is the most controversial of the first round. But any thoughts on Holiday here? Yeah, he seems like he's been one of the bigger mm-hmm. helium guys this year. Obviously, he had a pretty good profile coming into the spring. I think mm-hmm. he, was, he was one of my favorite players just watching him last summer, especially at the PG National Showcase at the trop like really liked his his swing there the the pure hitting ability the uh just a lot of hitterish tendencies in the box and then it sounds like just getting stronger uh has has helped him take off to the point where like you said maybe he maybe he doesn't even become available for the Mets <laughs> at 11 when when the draft comes yeah, I, I would say Holiday was probably top two for players that scouts last summer were like, watch next after an offseason with him getting stronger, he, he has a chance to really blow up. It was, it was Jackson Holiday um, and, and Justin Crawford was the other one who just constantly heard that from last summer and has proven to be the case. Um, at number 12, JJ is picking for the Tigers. He goes with our first college pitcher off the board and he takes Kamar Rocker, which that's I not was even shocked. a college pitcher. Well, like, yeah, no, no school pitcher. Um, I was shocked with this pick at the time, but at the same time, everything we've written about Kamar this year is he's going to be a wild card. And so I can't really say this won't happen. I don't, I don't have the confidence to say this won't happen, but I think I would still be surprised on draft day if this happened, just because the health is such a big question mark. Still haven't heard when he's going to throw before the draft, if he's going to throw. The assumption is that he's going to throw. Maybe if he comes out and is, is the same old Kamar Rocker, people start talking about him as a top of the first round player. But but I haven't heard that any so far this year. Um, thoughts on this one, Ben? I mean, for the Tigers, it makes sense. They really like these power pitchers. Um, but for me, this pick is just so much on, on just the doctors that I don't know. I'll never feel confident with it. Yeah, what you said about the Tigers is true. Um, I, I don't like this one at all. I don't. I don't think you can draft a pitcher like Rocker. Take that, in JJ. This, in this situation, yeah, take that. Where you can't defend yourself here on our on our podcast that you're not on. Um, <laughs> the I, I I think you've got to see him throw again. I mean, I understand if a guy had Tommy John surgery, like he, then you actually have the information on his medical. You understand. All right, a guy is coming back from that procedure you understand why he hasn't thrown yet okay uh then i i get that although even then if a guy did have tommy john i don't know that i would take him in in this spot this high in the first round anyway but uh to take him here without seeing him throw knowing that at least the mets had some issue with his medical that you're what last year then you're probably I don't think JJ has access to it at least, um, but you know, you, you might not even get access to that this year before the draft. Um, I mean, I, I really like the the rocker pick for the Mets last year, obviously before everything happened. So like you said, he, he is very much a wild card, uh, but this is a little too wild for me. Yeah, I think I think I would agree. Um, next pick was uh, number thirteen for the Angels. Chris is back on the board. You didn't like his first pick when he took Jacob Berry. His second pick is Noah Schultz, um, who I think you probably are going to like this one a little bit more. I'm not sure where you think Schultz fits uh, on the board, but certainly after his first start this spring, he was a guy who looked like he had a chance to be the 
first non Dylan Let's Go high school pitcher off the board. And Chris makes him that in this staff draft. Um, he hasn't pitched a ton this spring, but when he has been on the mound, he's been quite good. Um, ben, what do you think about this? Yeah, if you're going to take a high school pitcher here, he he probably would be the guy. I mean, mm-hmm. it looks like it's like Randy Johnson and Andrew Miller had a baby, and mm-hmm. it's just kind of freakish size um, from the left side, really difficult angle. The velocity is popping, high spin on on all the stuff that he throws, and and really good body control for mm-hmm. somebody who is as long and uh young as he is to be able to sync everything up and it, it seems like uh throw throw strikes at a, at a pretty good clip so um yeah. trending trending up arrow up type arm so if you're going to take a high school pitcher here um i think he'd be my guy too yep uh i'm back up at 14 for the mets with their second pick in the first round i was surprised that gavin cross and jordan beck were both available those were the two players that I really thought hard about taking in the end. I went with Cam Collier uh, for a lot of the reasons that you had talked about previously, Ben. I think the big thing for me is just a player this young performing at the level he's doing um, at Chipola. It was just very unique to me. I'm a sucker for upside. I think Cam has a ton of upside. Um, I mean, not that Cross and and Jordan Beck don't have a lot of power and and have really good production and performance this year. Um, I probably would have gone Gavin Cross over Jordan Beck, if I didn't go with Collier, but in the end, I knew there was no chance Collier got back to me at my next pick um, at number 19 uh, because I had to go through another pick with you. And I'm, I'm sure you would have snatched him up if he was on the board there. Um, so in the end, I took Collier and I was curious in general just to see where these uh, two college outfielders and Cross and Jordan Beck would fall. Um, I think this was my probably my favorite pick in the draft. And I guess nice. also my most hated pick in the draft. <laughs> I'll take that. I will definitely take that. The, the one thing is Cam is not very short, so it doesn't really fit your profile in that sense, but he's, he certainly seems to be one of your favorite, maybe your favorite player this year. You really well, neither like is Chase. Neither is Chase the louder. That's um, true. I, I, yeah, I like, I like good hitters. I you like, got your, you I got your like... short pick out of the way with Tamar. You can, you can kind of go a little bit more varied to the rest of the draft. Now you got it out of the way. What's well, it's just the middle guys. Right. Actually, the, the middle guys are actually like the sweet spot of what you want is ideally. <laughs> that, like, you're, you're just going for the extremes. You want O'Neal in Cruz that, in or that, you want Alec Thomas. Yeah. Like generally, like I like the ideal size is probably, I mean, it depends on the position and, and all that, but you know, in that five eleven to six, two range is where you don't run into the, you know, extreme issues that, you know, super tall players you know hitters run into or you know shorter uh pitchers or hitters can can run into too so um obviously each guy is is different though so uh and like you can see it's you know five eight six four whatever i mean if they can hit (laughs) i'll take them uh speaking of if they can hit you'll take them savannah goes with another player who i think you like ben and cole young at number 15 for the padres gotta say this pick doesn't feel like a Padres pick um, just because Cole Young isn't like the toolsiest guy. doesn't feel like the biggest upside guy, but he is one of the best pure hitters in the class. He is a guy I think has a chance to stick at shortstop left-handed hitter. In my mind, I think of him very similar to how I thought about Anthony Volpe when he was in high school, just very polished, mm. refined bat to ball skills, good approach 
tools weren't the craziest and, and looking at, at the way Volpe's tools have jumped in pro ball, it almost makes me feel more excited about Cole Young. But what did you think about this pick at 15 for the Padres? I think he, he, oh, you're right. I think he probably ends up going later in the draft, but I might've taken him with my next pick here. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I really like Cole Young. I, I like his swing. It's short, simple, fluid, good path through the zone, a lot of contact, very, very hitter-ish, good sense of the strike zone. Not a ton of power right now, but once you layer some strength on there, I, I think more power is going to come. Uh, probably always a, a, a hit-over-power profile, but just because of the contact frequency, you, you could see some some more surprising power numbers coming from him down the road when, once he does get into some more strength. Uh, and, and like Savannah said, pretty solid at – at shortstop too. So um, if he's, you know, a shortstop who can, you know, who can really hit um, there's, there's a lot to like there. I, I, I think he's, I think he could fit here in the middle of the first round, even if it's more likely he does go um, a little bit later on in, in the draft. Yep. Uh, next we have Jeff making his third pick of the staff draft at 16 for the guardians. Um, and he's taking Gavin Cross, who Jeff Jeff said he thought it was the the steal of the draft so far, and, and I tend to agree. I think Cross is a guy who who has a chance to easily go in the top ten picks. Um, scouts have just raved about his approach this year. He's cut down on the strikeouts. He always had really impressive power. Um, he still has that power, just with a much better walk rate, much better strikeout rate. I mean, you look at his production over three years, the Virginia tech, the lowest he's ever hit is 345 last year. Right now he's hitting 358, 447, 679, probably going to be a corner outfielder, but I think a bat that you can feel pretty good with uh, in terms of power, in terms of contact, in terms of the approach change this year, entering the year of the strikeouts were a question mark for me. And I think he's done a good job answering that question so far on a team that, I mean, this Virginia Tech team, just everyone seems to hit and, and cross is the, the biggest draft prospect of that group at this point. But thoughts on this pick, Ben? He was, he was definitely a guy that I didn't expect to make it to, to this spot. So I think I would agree. You said my Collier pick is your favorite of the draft. I think this Gavin Cross pick is probably my favorite one. And I, I would be surprised in the actual draft if he, if he made it this far. Yeah, I, I could see him. Yeah, I could see him going in in this range. Like you said, maybe even higher. Um, I'm yeah, I, I I'm starting to get sold a little bit more on on him fitting here. I think coming into the year, um, like you talked about, the the strikeouts were were a touch high last year, but he has done a good job of cutting that down. So I um, I don't, I don't love the pick quite as much as, as you do, but, uh, I think he certainly could fit into, into this neighborhood. At 17, uh, Thomas making his next pick with the Phillies. He goes with Jackson Ferris, making him the second left-handed pitcher off the board and the third high school pitcher. Uh, I think for all of these high school lefties, I have no clue which order they're going to go. Any order wouldn't surprise me. That's Jackson Ferris, um, Noah Schultz and Brandon Barriera. I've never had confidence in how the industry lines them up. I think it depends on who you talk to. Um, but I think he solidly fits in the middle of the first round. Um, so I have no qualms with this pick. And the Phillies have been a team who clearly don't mind going to the high school pitcher demographic, although they've taken righties and they've they've had a chance to take the maybe the best high school pitchers 
um, available to them in each of the past two years. So thoughts on this one, Ben? Yeah, like you said, Phillies go Mick Abel. They go Andrew Painter. Um, Painter has been very, very good this year. Uh, it sounds like his stuff is electric and his early performance is pretty good too. So early signs are, are positive yeah. for him. Yeah, definitely good early early reports on him. I don't think he would be the next high school pitcher that I would take here. But again, like you said, I think the if he pulled a bunch of different clubs or even scouts within uh, an individual club, <laughs> they would have the uh, you know the remaining group of pitchers beyond Dylan Lesko stacked up in in different ways. Yep. So you're back up at 18 for the Reds. Which players were you hoping made it here, Ben? And I guess with how the board played out, who who were you kind of thinking of? Yeah, obviously Cam Collier uh, sort of would have sort of been a, a dream scenario for me. I, I thought there was still a chance, uh, but alas, um, Cole Young, I, I really thought would have been available here. So I, I had to uh, have my hope shattered on so that. So you got one. sniped not it's... once but twice on this one. Well, I I still really like Justin Crawford here picking for the Reds. He is the son of Carl Crawford. Uh, certainly has inherited his dad's speed and athleticism. Um, but like I was talking about before with uh, Lazaro Montes, where you you know you see guys who have you know something extraordinary like raw power or or speed and athleticism that jumps out immediately at you in a workout and people get excited about that um i I don't get too excited until i see some game performance too and and the way the swing works not just in bp but uh in the game too and um i really like that actually from from crawford obviously it's easy to um, to talk about the speed and, and the athleticism that he brings to the table. But um, I thought he actually handled the bat pretty well in games, uh, showed a two-strike approach, pretty good, pretty good back control. And I think there's, there's some surprising power in there too for uh, a pretty tall, slender kid. Um, you know, his dad was never a, a big power hitter himself I, I don't know exactly like he, he's it's such a slender frame that there's some risk maybe a lot of strength never comes along with it but uh, I think there's a chance that it, it does and you know even if he doesn't end up turning into a, a big power bat just the you know premium position in center field uh, the speed and, and athleticism to go with what I, I think is a you know a pretty solid bat too uh with a, a chance to hit for power down the road um i that's I, I i like a lot of things about uh about justin crawford yep absolutely i think he's one of the more exciting high upside players on the board here um makes sense at 19 um i'm back on the clock for the a's the best players on the board here um just in terms of va ranking at the time would be brock porter jordan beck and Brandon Barriera, I, I, again, I was surprised that, that Beck was available for my, um, my pick at number 14 for the Mets. Um, I'm shocked that he's here for the A's and that might just make me just, okay, just take the guy who fell to you and be happy. I didn't, uh, because I just am infatuated with Kate Doty's swing. I think the A's specifically like in the 2017 through 2019 drafts, they took athletes with some tools that didn't really pan out. 
Uh, in the first round in 2020 and 2021, they took more bat forward prospects and those players, they look like they're, they are panning out pretty well so far. So I'm taking Doty just because I have a ton of confidence in his, his hit tool, his approach. He's shown a little bit more power this spring, which I like, he's going to play the infield. Um, when I think of Doty, like it's not a direct comparison, but just in terms of like value and player profile in this range, I think of a guy like Justin Foscue and how he's turned out just, just a player who mm. maybe will surprise people in this range, but I don't think should be a surprise if that makes sense. I just feel like there's a lot of safety with this pick. I feel confident he's going to be a big leaguer in some capacity. Yes, I do think I'm leaving some upside on the table here with this pick, which is not typically like me. Um, but after watching Doty, his high school track record, what he's done this year, I just think he's such a polished hitter that I, I feel comfortable with that at 19. And I knew I was probably not going to get him with my next pick just because of um, knowing some of the tendencies and, and who people who are making picks in this draft uh, how they feel about him. So Dodie was my pick at 19. Yeah, I think he goes somewhere. I don't know exactly where, but probably somewhere in the back of the first round where some other club is thinking the exact same way that you are and is looking at the college bat and, and especially the lack of college pitching too will will help <laughs> bump him up the board. And, and you look at him versus, you know, Robert Moore at Arkansas, uh, second baseman who's – you know, he is a, a year younger, right? Because he entered college early. But the, you know, the numbers that Moore is producing this year in, in the same conference are, are not quite as good. So, yep. yeah, I mean, I think, I think both those guys could go in the, you know, mid to back of the, you know, depending how they finish up. Maybe Robert Moore elevates his stock some more. But um, I think at this point, yeah, you could see both those guys going toward the, back of the first round or, or like you mentioned with, you know, Foscu too, maybe a little bit higher if somebody mm-hmm. uh, wants to cut a, an underslot deal with them. Cause they're, they're really convicted on, on the bat with one of those guys. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, at number 20, Jordan Beck finally comes off the board. I think this is fantastic value that kind of fell into JJ's pocket here. Um, JJ doesn't like that. A lot of the Tennessee players are, are performing better than him. And that may be why he, he didn't take him previously as well. That doesn't concern me too much. I mean, J.J. Blade was outperformed by Austin Martin his draft year. I think this Tennessee team is just really, really good. We'll probably look back in a few years and see a number of, of really impressive players that have come from this group. Um, but Jordan Beck looks like a big leaguer. Um, he's a freak athlete. He's got a ton of power. Some swing and miss questions, but he's produced this year. He's, he's hit the ball hard in front of uh, the right people and against the right teams. So I think this is, like the Gavin Cross pick, I think this is really, really good value. Um Maybe he goes in the back of the first if, if the swing and miss continues. But uh, I mean, right now I, I feel like it would be surprising to see him get to this pick, but I could be just too high in him. I'm not sure. I've talked to some scouts who really like Beck. Yeah. I, I think the swing and miss concerns me a little bit more uh, where I, you know, I think it's probably fair value more than great value where I think he will, or I, I, if he goes in the back of the first round, I don't think that's out of place for him. But I, I think that's one area of his game, especially the track record of swing and miss throughout his career, which obviously he has cut down on. Um, but that would be that would be certainly the area that would give me pause with him. Yep, at 21, Chris is back on the clock for the Mariners. He goes with Robert Moore, who entering the year, I think everyone would have had more above K. Doty. Feels like it's flipping to me. Um, like you said, Ben, he hasn't performed great this year. Taking a lot of walks, 26 walks to 23 strikeouts right now with a 400 OBP. He's always posted very high on base numbers, but
but he's hitting 244, um, which is not good. Um, teams are, are really going to bang him for that. Um, he is a year younger than a lot of these players. He does have the, the bloodlines. He's been around the game um, for his entire life. I think he's probably the best college infielder um, that we've had go off the board this year. It's not a, a stellar crop of college infielders, but he is a plus defender. I think he's got a better chance to give you value as a defender at second base than a guy like Cade Doty. Um, and maybe you think with, with what he's done in the past, he's got a chance for more power as well um, after hitting 16 home runs last year with Arkansas, but just four so far this year, again, with the 244 average, he's certainly slid down boards this spring. I think he's got a chance to keep sliding um, if he keeps hitting like he's hitting. So I'm not sure. Uh, I know scouts are split on him. We've talked to guys who really like him and we've talked to guys who are a little bit more skeptical of, of the bat. So uh, I'm not sure how I feel about this pick and I'm really unsure where he's actually going to go in the, in the real draft. Cause I mean, at the beginning of the spring, we were talking about him as like a fringe top 10 pick who, who could have gone to the Royals. So certainly not in that range now. Yeah. I think you said it well. And I think also if he finishes up the year on a tear, he could also go even higher. <laughs> than this potentially mm -hmm. at 22 for the Cardinals Savannah is picking again she goes with Connor Prelip um, that's the first college left-hander I believe off the board and our second college pitcher overall after the Kamar Rocker pick um, obviously Connor Prelip hasn't pitched at all so far this year he's coming back from Tommy John surgery this one I think makes more sense to me than the Kamar pick. I, I've talked to a lot of people who think that Prelip will still go somewhere in the back third of the first round, just because of what he showed when he was healthy. Um, prior to Tommy John surgery, he was a top of the first round candidate in this draft. Obviously that, that didn't happen with the injury, but fantastic fastball, really good slider, tons of strikeouts, really good production while healthy. It's just a very small track record. The one good thing with Prelip is because of the timing He's got a chance to throw before the draft. And I think we should get a better feel for what kind of range he's slotting into based on the stuff he's, he's showing in pre-draft bullpens or whatever situation he's throwing in. Yeah. I mean, Gunnar Hoagland went 19th overall last year um, to the blue Jays. Um, so, in, you know, coming from, you know, back from his uh, uh, elbow injury too. So um, did throw 62 know, innings that a, draft year though. I think that that might be it a factor here and overall right but uh yeah the the the, the timeline obviously mm -hmm. is different but in terms of two guys who you know mm -hmm. had they been healthy we'd probably be talking about is top yep. 10 type picks yeah so that makes it's, sense. it's like you said diff different than rocker situation where there's just more more of an unknown although again i think toward the back of the first round is where we could you know th there there is so much of an unknown still with with rocker but um that's a little bit more where i'd feel comfortable starting to to look at kumar gotcha yeah for prelip to the 28 total innings I'm, I'm curious how teams will feel about that maybe some teams with the models that would just make him a no-go in this range whereas with a guy like Gunnar hogland he had 154 total innings uh that's certainly going to be a factor for him um but but i like the talent here there's no chance the cardinals were going to get a player like this if he's healthy so um i don't mind the pick at number 23, Jeff is back on the clock for the Blue Jays. He goes with Landon Sims, another pick that just screams uh, Jeff pick. He's an analytics darling in terms of stuff, fastball that plays well, maybe one of the best breaking balls in the class. Um, so Sims at 23 and another guy who had a chance to be a top of the first round. 
pick if healthy. Yeah, kind of the same stuff I just talked about with Hoagland would not scare off the Blue Jays in this situation. Obviously, they have already traded Gunnar Hoagland, but, uh, you know, I think that <laughs> that was worth it for them. Uh, we keep the run on injured college pitchers going at 24 um, with Hunter Barco to the Red Sox. Tom made this pick, and I think he made this pick before it was announced that Barco was going to be um, out indefinitely with elbow um, with an elbow injury. Um, yes. I think this one made all the sense in the world prior to that, just because Hunter fit that classic safe polished lefty that you felt was going to give you value as a major league pitcher, maybe didn't have the same sort of upside. And we've seen those profiles go in this round previously. Um, I'm not sure where he's going to fall now, but this college pitching class is just cursed for injuries. So, Yeah, that's uh, I had the next pick for, the Yankees at 25 and I took Brandon Barriera, um, a lefty that uh, I'm, I'm surprised is still here. Although again, that said with high school pitching, it just depends on who's picking where and which organizations have philosophies on their, whether they're comfortable picking a, a high school pitcher at that spot, given the risk and in, involved with them. But um, man, to get Barriera toward the back of the first round, uh, uh, a lefty with power, power stuff, feel for spin, touching, you know, mid to, to upper 90s at, at times, um, swing and miss stuff with his, his breaking ball. There, there's feel for a changeup too. Um, doesn't have the physicality, I think, compared to some of the other top high school pitchers that we're looking at in, in this first round range, but uh, the fastball touch and feel for his secondary stuff, especially the, uh, the breaking pitch is pretty, pretty good value. I think here toward the, the back of the first. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a great value. I don't, I don't think barrier lasts this long in the actual draft. Uh, I think there's a chance he, he could be the first left-handed pitcher off the board. So he, he's been quite good. Um, at 26, I'm on the board for the White Sox. This is my last pick of the draft. So knowing that, I, I had a few good options here still on the board. Brock Porter is available. Lake Tidwell is available. Um, a few other high school pitchers who are interesting, but I wanted to go with a hitter. There's no obvious hitter to me in this range. Um, so I went for just a swing that I really like, and that's Jet Williams, uh, who is one of the better performers at area codes. I just... Every time I see him swing, I feel like he has such a fluid bat path. He gets on plane so well. The strength gains have come this spring. He's got speed. I think he's a really impressive athlete. Just the hand speed and the power that I saw from him last summer, I was impressed with when he was a lot thinner. Uh, he's had a lot more strength, especially in the lower half this spring. I, I just think it works really well. I think he's going to hit. I think he's going to hit for power. He's going to play somewhere up the middle. Um, so there's an upside play by me. Uh, I think there are some teams who like him in this range. I don't know if that's consensus. We have him a little bit further back on our board right now, um, but this is just a swing that I really like, um, and I'm taking a shot on the upside at 26 for the White Sox, who who took a shot on the upside a year ago with a high school pick as well. So that was my thought process. Um, other players, Brock and Blade Tidwell, just didn't excite me enough, although maybe I should be excited by a, a guy like Brock Porter being available here who has a chance to go in the first half of the first round. Um, but anything on that one, Ben? He's a shorter guy. You, you should like this one. Yeah, I like him a little bit later. Like if it was 
the next round I, I take him. But at the same time, once we get into this range, I think the board mm. really opens up. Yep. And, you know, like we have, you know, we have our rankings, but at the same time, it's not like we're saying the gap between, you know, who's number 28 and number 42 is some big difference the way there would be between number mm. four and number, you know, 17. Yep, exactly. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think this year, especially once we get into this, this range, it could go, it could go all over the place. Um, number 27 for the Brewers, JJ's on the board. He takes Porter, um, noting that it, it isn't unusual for a prep pitcher to slide in the draft. Um, and it's good value. Uh, I think Porter has a, a fantastic changeup, hard throwing guy, uh, good breaking ball as well. One of the better Michigan prospects out of high school in a while. Um, I think this is just good value for the talent. And I think JJ is right that, to note that these profiles can slide on draft day. Yeah, I don't know if the Brewers would take a high school pitcher that high, um, but probably would have said the same thing about Chase Petty and the Twins here. That's, exa- that's exactly where too. I was going to go. <laughs> so it might be a situation where, I mean, like Garrett Mitchell slipped in the draft and uh, he doesn't have the typical like bat first profile the Brewers I think have gravitated or excuse me, gravitated toward. Uh, but if somebody who's, you know, with this type of talent is available and the board again is, <laughs> you know, th- those top college hitters, the top high school hitters are, are not there. Yeah. I mean, we could see some teams stray from some of their typical philosophies or, or draft history here. Yep. Uh, number 28 for the Astros. Chris is back on the board. He takes Blake Tidwell. Again, I think this makes sense just based on our board, based on the value. Tidwell is back in pitching. So unlike a lot of these other injured college arms, he's got a chance to kind of reclaim some of his draft stock. And, and starting the year, we had Tidwell as ranked in a position as, as arguably the best college arm in the class, power fastball, power breaking ball, good physical frame, actually has some track record as a starter, which is a commodity in this year's class. And Chris notes that the Astros have done a good job developing pitchers as well. So I think this one makes sense on, on talent, on, on team fit, and just based on how the board played out. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Savannah at number 29 for the Rays. She takes Walter Ford. And I think Savannah really has just thrown risk to the wind here. She's taken a lot of picks that come with a lot of risk. She took Dylan Lesko. She took Connor Prelep. And now she's taking a young for the class, high school right-handed pitcher. So I like the mentality with her. She's not afraid to take risky profiles. Um, I like Walter Ford a lot. I like the arm action. I like the fastball. I like the breaking ball. Um, one of the youngest players in the entire class. He doesn't turn 18 until December. Um, it is a Florida pick for a Florida organization, which is always fun. Um, and I know, Ben, you had seen Walter Ford quite a bit as well as a, a reclass guy. So thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, it, it aligns with what the Rays have done previously. I mean, you think back to Nick Bitsko, who Nick was Bitsko, a yep. reclassification guy, high school right-handed pitcher, back of the first round uh i think this makes a lot of sense obviously i don't, I don't bitsko hasn't even thrown yet he's he's just been hurt um so we've had you know some trouble staying on the field with him but i think ford ford is i think ford fits toward this back of the first round uh range or or not too far after it there's a lot of high school a lot of high school pitching that i'm i'm really excited about just kind of on this 
back of the first rounds periphery of, of, of this area. Um, there's a lot of different areas to go, but yeah, Walter Ford is, like you said, young, uh, electric fastball up to, I think 97 when I saw him last summer would not surprise me at all. If he ends up throwing a uh, hundred miles an hour one day and, um, really aggressive rips mm-hmm. off a, a potential plus slider too. So, um, I think this is a good, good spot for him. Yeah. And then talking about these high school pitchers who have gone off the board, I'm curious if, if the industry will just take more of these players than they typically do in the first round because of the lack of college pitchers. And because I think the high school pitching class in general is quite good, or if there will be other college pitchers who just get pushed up the board, um, or maybe they wouldn't be a first round talent in another draft class this year with the lack of college arms, those guys are Jeff Ponce takes a guy who might uh, fall into that classification, although he's been a fantastic performer all year. Um, he takes Cooper, Cooper Jerpy, left-handed pitcher out of Oregon State for the Giants at number 30 to round out this draft. Another pick that just feels so much like a Jeff pick. He's a an analytics uh, outlier kind of guy with a low slot fastball that plays up really well. Not as fast as Jack Leiter's, but Jeff notes that the approach angle is flatter than Jack Leiter's a year ago, and that was obviously a uh, a big positive for for analytics and just people in general to, to see how that pitch plays as well as it does. I think Cooper has also done a nice job throwing his breaking stuff more and getting a little bit more swing and miss with the breaking stuff. That was one of the questions that scouts had for him entering the year. Um, and through nine starts, he's got a 1.81 ERA over 54 innings, 88 strikeouts and 11 walks. So the numbers check out, I think a model team is going to be all over a guy like this. Um, and so he goes to the giants at number 30. Uh, any thoughts on this pick then to round us out? Yeah, probably be another guy I'd slide a little bit deeper down the board, mm-hmm. but like we talked about before, there's a whole bunch of different ranges. You could see guys in this, in this area going. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is the entirety of the staff draft. So if you didn't read it, then you got the whole thing here. Uh, any takeaways, favorite picks overall after going through the whole thing, Anything maybe that it it kind of highlighted about this draft class that maybe weren't thinking of entering this process? For me, uh, just the pitching, where the pitching is going to fall, who's going to reach for the pitching, where do the college arms go, where do the injured arms go? Just kind of heightened that just because this year, I mean, we could break a record for the longest, the deepest down the first college pitcher is selected this year. So that's something that I'm going to be watching out for in the actual draft. I think my favorite pick overall is probably Gavin Cross at 16, uh, if I had to take one. Are you just trying to bait me into telling you how good your Cam Collier pick was again? No, no, no. That's my favorite one. My least favorite one is the Kamar Rocker pick. I'm just curious in general, now that we've done the whole thing, if there's a pick you're like, I really like that one. You don't have to. Maybe outside of Cam Collier, but you don't have to, you don't have to give me props here. Well, I, I think what stands out to me now is is looking at beyond the first round who's still available and there's still a lot of good i think high school pitching who you could get in the in one of these uh competitive and balance rounds or you know the second round guys um you know whether it's jacob miller or andrew decanich or jr ritchie um, 
you know, uh, some of these guys might even not still be <laughs> available because some of these guys might, um, you know, improve their, their stock throughout the, the rest of the, the spring. Um, so they, they might end up going in the back of the first round where, you know, a guy like a, a Walter Ford or, or Brock Porter, where, where we have them here. So um, I, I really like the, especially the college, the college and, and, and the high school hitters toward um, the top half or top you know 20 picks in, in the first round and then targeting pitching um, some of these high school pitchers. who I think will still be available after that. Cause I, you know, I, I like, you know, I think like Brian, well, excuse me, Brock Porter is a, a good arm. And, and I certainly like Noah Schultz too, but I don't know that the gap between those guys and, you know, uh, you know, a Jacob Miller or an Andrew Dekanich is like that great of a gap compared to some of these bigger bats that we're looking at, like a, you know, like a Cam Collier or a, a Chase DeLouder who are looking like, you know, top 15 type picks. Uh, if you can get a bat like that early on and then still have a really good pitcher to, to take with, with your next pick, um, that's what kind of opens, opens it up for, for me is just seeing the, the talent that's still, still on the board on the pitching side after, at least on the high school pitching side, uh, beyond this first round group. Yeah. I really like the college hitting class a lot. I'm curious to see some of the, the better college bats that didn't go off the board. And this one, guys like Zach Neto at Campbell, um, Dylan Beavers, outfielder at California, Brock Jones, even at Stanford, he's walked a lot, hasn't maybe hit as much as his teams wanted to see so far, but Eric Brown, coastal Carolina, uh, I mean, even guys further down, like a Jacob Melton or Drew Gilbert, really high performing guys, Sterling Thompson at Florida, like those, those profiles always move up throughout the spring as the performance continues. Um, I feel like a number of those guys have a chance to work their way into the back of the first round. Um, maybe a guy like Neto has already done that depending on uh, what kind of team you are, how you value um, his, his production in the past and his tool set now, but I'm very high on this college hitting group. I know some people in the office are not as, as high on it as I am, but I think it's good at the top. And I think there's some sneaky depth here with some of the performances that we've seen. So just kind of seeing if teams do go for some of these hitters or if they pivot to some of these high school pitchers that you're talking about in the top 50 picks or so, just kind of how that breaks down is going to be fascinating to me. But um, yeah, that's going to do it for the staff draft. Ben, do you want to get to any questions um, or should we yeah, save those for next time we get out of here? Uh, yeah, let's jump into, yeah. let's hear from the people. Let's do it. We have, um, a question from last week, actually, that we saved because I thought it was a really good one. Uh, Dave on Twitter asks, how does Drew Jones compare with other high school draft prospects over the last five years? Is he ahead of Bobby Witt Jr., Riley Green, etc.? cetera? Uh, I think this is a really good one. And I pulled going back to 2018, the top three or four high school hitters, just so we can have a, an easier comparison point. Um, so right now our top hitters on the board in the 22 class are Drew Jones, Tamar Johnson, Elijah Green, Jackson Holiday. In 2021, it was the high school shortstop group of Jordan Lawler, Marcelo Meyer, Khalil Watson, Brady House. In 2020, we had Zach Veen, Austin Hendrick, Robert Hassel. Um, 2019, Bobby Witt Jr., CJ Abrams, Riley Green, and then 2018, we had Jared Kelnick, Bryce Terang, Nolan Gorman. 
Um, so just finding out where to slot him in or how he compares, I think is, is an interesting thought exercise to have. Uh, for me, I think he, he probably is near the top of this group. I would have Bobby Wood Jr. as the top player, and I might have C.J. Abrams as the number two. That 2019 group was just very good. It, it, extremely high upside with loud tools players at premium positions. I think as a separator, the high school group of 2021 was obviously really good, but none of those players had the, the sort of tools that Bobby Wood Jr. and C.J. Abrams had at the time. And I think Drew Jones' tool set compares to those two pretty well. Uh, it's just the fact that he's a center fielder over a shortstop. So how do you compare a guy who is getting 70 defensive grades as a center fielder compared to a guy like Bobby Wood Jr. who's getting plus defensive grades as a shortstop? Um, I would probably go just off the top of my head here looking at it. Bobby Wood Jr., C.J. Abrams, then Drew Jones as players that I like at, at the time of the draft. For a lot of these guys, maybe it's easy to use some of the information that we have given what they've seen with pro ball, but but I think he would rate out pretty well. And I, I think you could also make a case that that he slots in number two, even above CJ. Uh, but but where do you think about him slotting in, Ben, with some of these guys? Well, where would you put Drew Jones as a hitter compared to Bobby Wood Jr. or CJ Abrams or or maybe if if there's other guys who would stack ahead yeah. of him? at least among the premium position guys yeah, I think, or guys who project to be a mm-hmm. middle of the diamond guys. So if you're, do you include Jared Kelnick in that, that caveat? Because I think Jared Kelnick of all these players might be the best pure hitter at the time. And I think, I think at the time in 2018, we had, I felt afterwards that I had ranked him too low. We had him 12 in that class. He went six, obviously to the Mets. Um, and he probably overall is the best, just outside of Termar was the best hitter um, and also had really impressive tools. So with Bobby with junior, there was the swing and miss questions, but I thought the approach was good. He accessed his power better than Drew Jones or better than CJ Abrams. Um, and then with CJ Abrams, everyone raved about his bats ball skills. Uh, I thought at the time the approach needed some work. So I think Drew maybe fits a little bit in the middle of those two. I think it's a, a really good combination of bats of ball skills and approach and you're kind of waiting for that power to develop um so i don't know if you're talking about pure bats ball skills you'd probably give the edge to drew and a guy like cj abrams over bobby wood jr but if you're talking about just overall offensive value i'd probably still go Bobby Wood jr or a guy like jared kelnick where do you view them yeah i would still yeah i would have wit and abrams over him i mean even just on like pure swing and hitting ability like i i think i would take like lawler and and meyer and again like i don't want to keep talking about tomorrow but it's just like there, there's there are other guys who just have more more conviction on the the swing and pure hitting ability obviously there's a lot to like with with drew too he certainly mm-hmm. belongs in this conversation of of players but um i'm probably i'm probably just a little bit lower relative to to mm-hmm. others just on the pure pure offensive game um yep. but he he obviously belongs in, in, in terms this conversation of, of in terms guys. of tools i don't know that they're outside of maybe bobby Wood jr and cj abrams i don't know who the other player would be that you could compare to a guy like Drew jones because he gets 70 grade um run 70 grade runner 70 and i mean some people put 80 i think we can safely put 70 grade defender in center field 
at least 60 grade arm. Like guys with those supplemental tools, you just don't see them a lot. Like none of the Lawler, Meyer, Watson house group had had tools of that level at those supplemental tools. No. And you can maybe say they're all shortstops. So maybe that's where you, where you get some of that value back and you can make the case for those shortstops instead, because they're going to play on the infield. Um, I mean, the 2020 group of Veen, Austin Hendrick, Robert Hassel, I don't think, I think Drew Jones would solidly be at the top of those players. But again, you, you might like Zach Veen swing more than you like Drew Jones swing. Is there anything specific about Drew swing that you don't like, or is it just the fact that you like all these other ones a lot more? Uh, yeah. I mean, I like Marcelo Meyer, I think just as a, a beautiful, beautiful swing. Um, I mean, I love Bobby Witt Jr.'s swing. Like, yeah, I think these, some, there's just some better, better, pure swing, better, pure, pure hitting ability. But like you said, I mean, maybe you could put Elijah green just as far as just raw, raw tools and athleticism and, and explosion certainly up yeah. there like yeah those guys will you know i mean khalil watson can he can run but it's you know and and he does have power too especially for for his size but like you know the the defensive tools are, are not what uh you know drew jones's are obviously yeah so i think that's interesting to think through it's 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 so tricky too because it's hard to completely put ourselves back in, in the mindset of how we view these players at the same time as we're at with Drew. We just have more information that's that's always going to maybe tilt the scales a little bit. Um, but that's a good question. Uh, Dwight Bird on Instagram asks, what are your thoughts on Alec Thomas? I feel like Alec is a guy who I've been very open about, really liking. Um, I think he's fantastic. I love his hands, love his pure hitting ability. I think he's, I think he's stronger than people give him credit for. I'm curious to see like what kind of exit velocities and power that's going to translate to. Um, he started the year in AAA and been solid. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very high on Alec. I think he, he just does everything really well. I don't think there's any obvious part of his game that they doesn't have outside of just the size and the physicality that maybe you would like to see, but yeah, I'm, I'm very high on Alec. Ben. Yeah. I mean, other than arm, which is obviously the least important, yep, that's for, a good uh, you know, for, for a center fielder, there's, every every other box he's he's checking off mm -hmm. good performance pretty much everywhere he's he's been it's you know we saw it last year in triple a when he got there uh we're seeing it again this year obviously a good hitting environment but i don't think it's just a product of of being in a good hitters park or, or a good hitters league um i think he's just got a uh a, a knack for for barreling <laughs> the the baseball there's there's probably some more power um in there than than you would expect for his his size um plus speed can play center field plays good defense too i, I think in in center field so um yeah i think it's a chance to be a top of the order type guy at a premium position so i think he's got a, a chance to be a pretty pretty impactful player yeah, he is a career for this is four seasons now of minor league data, 289 games. He's a 311, 387, 496 hitter. I think that that speaks to his pure hitting ability. The one thing that actually jumps out just looking at his his uh stats online is the stolen bases. He's not the most efficient base dealer. Looks like he could improve in that area. He's stolen one bag this year and got caught twice. And overall, it's 41 steals and 27 times getting caught. So I think that maybe is an area that you could nitpick if you wanted, but in general, yeah, we're, we're pretty high on Alec. 
Um, next question is from Michael on Instagram who asks, why can I think of questions when listening to the show, but never when I see y'all's requests? Um, that is unfortunate that that happens, but you guys, if you, if you have a similar problem, feel free to throw out your questions to us at any point. Um, it doesn't have to be just when we request questions on Twitter, you can, you can hit Ben or myself up at, at whatever avenue is easiest for you to ask a question and just, just specify that it's for the podcast. If you want us to answer it on the podcast and we'll kind of file it away into our show document and make sure we get to it. If it's something that we feel like we can provide some information or, or some value, um, or, or you can tweet it to the at future pro pod handle yeah. on Twitter. Also, we'll see it there. But mm-hmm. I actually think there's probably something to that too, where I mean, like, like when you're listening to us, you're, I hope it felt like you're just, you know, you're obviously listening to our conversation and um, your mind is probably a little bit more shut off at the same time, right? Like it's like, it's when you're in the shower and good ideas come to you in the shower or you're just on a walk and you're not thinking about other stuff. So you have all these good ideas that pop into your head or you're trying to go to sleep (laughs) and your your mind is just racing and you, you can't because you've got all mm -hmm. this crap under your head. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, yeah. um, I think if you have a way to manufacture those types of situations for yourself, you can um, find a way to come up with good ideas or if you're, you know, on a long drive, in a car. So something like that, um, where you're just kind of alone and with your thoughts or, or just listening to us talking about baseball, it actually makes sense where you have more, uh, things that spark ideas when you're, when you're doing that. Absolutely. So I think that's all we had for this week. Um, but yeah, this was a fun conversation, Ben, hopefully you guys enjoyed, uh, any, anything you need to plug before we get out of here, Ben? Uh, no, I just appreciate all the like word of mouth for our podcast is, is great. So that's the, that's our best marketing. So definitely appreciate, uh, kind, uh, kind tweets, uh, and, uh, ratings on the podcast to help juice us up the, uh, the Apple and Spotify algorithms. So appreciate, uh, appreciate all that from, from all you guys listening. Yeah, definitely. I'll just echo those comments and thank you guys for listening. Um, it was a long podcast today and hopefully you guys enjoyed that. So we like getting into these conversations and just talking baseball and that's what you guys like listening to. So thank you all for listening. Thank you for subscribing to baseball America. If you're a BA subscriber, if not, and you enjoyed this podcast, you'd probably like everything we do on the website and the magazine. So consider that, um, for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the King of Sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc